The following podcast is a production of The Network. Check us out on BICBP-radio.com. gentlemen welcome to another edition of rediscovering the indies a independent wrestling history podcast i am chris gullo joined alongside jonathan ash hey hey and uh we got a really fun episode for you first off though i want to give some thank yous to everyone who listened to our last episode about dale gagne gagner um i got some messages uh, a buddy of mine was actually a ring announcer in iowa alex mccarthy he goes oh yeah, we I got some stories about Dale. We've heard all these stories. Like he's almost like a, 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 a like all these like not myths, but he's almost like an urban legend, almost in the Midwest, like of all the crazy stuff that he did or whatnot. Uh, so uh, got some great feedback on that uh, for that episode. So we thank everyone that listened. I know uh, uh, multiple times we were around 100 and we even got up to like 91 for this episode so we really thank and you know in the uh, chartable ranking so we really want to thank you guys for listening to us keep spreading the word uh we've got to get those twitter likes up or twitter follows i should say that's my old man so i mean twitter likes uh get those twitter follows up it's uh twitter uh at rti pod on twitter on instagram it's rediscovering the indies and then on uh, facebook uh like the page rediscovering the indies but yeah like i said uh definitely uh like our social media um for to know about like you know upcoming shows and and little tidbits and all that so we want to thank you guys uh for following us and listening to us and um you know, we we couldn't do this without you. We've been fastly growing in such a short period of time. So, um, but we'll uh, we'll get into the matter of hand. Like I said last month, we discussed a uh, Dale Gagne wrestling promoter. Well, now we're going to discuss another one, Roland Alexander, best known for his appearance on Beyond the Mat, which we're going to get into in a little bit here. Um, to give a little background on Roland Alexander before the wrestling school really got going here. Uh, so this is a, a little bit from his obituary uh, uh, from the uh, observer, but uh, he was a lifelong wrestling fan um, who actually, he met Meltzer 43 years before his death uh, because Moondog Moretti, Ricky Thompson, and a few used to hang around together at the matches that Meltzer would go to the Kyle palace at the San Jose civic auditorium. Uh, in a trivia note, now Alexander didn't mention this himself on Art of Wrestling when he talked about Rocky Johnson, but uh, it has been said in a couple articles that he used to babysit The Rock when Rocky and Anada lived in, in Hayward, California, when Rocky was working for Shire. So uh, I found that very interesting that Roland Alexander babysat The Rock, <laughs> which they could have played on that and be on the mat. Um and uh, he he was friends with Rocky Johnson, and he did mention that Rocky agreed to train him to be a wrestler when he was mentioning our wrestling. But then Rocky wanted him to take eighty multivitamins a day, which I th- I think that number's got to be over exaggerated. Yeah, just a little. Uh, but wanted him to take eighty multivitamins a day, and he was like, "No, I'm not. I'm not taking eighty multivitamins a day. Uh, maybe forty, and then Roland Alexander would still be around wrestling." Uh, 
in that Roy Shire, San Francisco area, um, you know, listening to people, I think he contributed a lot to uh, Paul Diamond, not the Paul Diamond we know, uh, but Paul Diamond, who was like a uh, California worker at the time, would like give out roses to fans and stuff like that. So, yeah, and he uh, he had said that he would he worked and traveled with the boys throughout the seventies. Uh, not a lot of information's out there about that, but it could just been like the equivalent of the Indies back in the seventies, just more low on the low end there. It and he also like he was a gopher. Like yeah. the ring crew help out, like you know, yeah. like that. And he also throughout the eighties, uh he was always a guest on various radio shows that Meltzer was involved in in the Bay Area. And like it also was kinda of explained too, like he would just wanna he'd just sit in the locker room and listen to these guys and and you know, and they didn't like directly smarten him up, but they smartened up by him just listening to them talk about the business and all that. So like one of the things that is not presented in beyond the Mattis is that, you know, Roland Alexander wasn't just an accountant. Like, and they're like, Oh, but sometimes you you're, it's just ran by an accountant. Like when they were talking about different people in wrestling on the beyond the mat thing. And yeah, he was an accountant, uh, you know, and who had a wrestling school, but he does have some background. He understood the business. He saw the territories like, so I lifelong mean, fan. Yeah. He got a basic knowledge of it. Now, um, in 1991, uh, it, he opened up the Pacific coast sports gym in Hayward, which would become the garage and for APW. Uh, but really there isn't anything really publicized till 1995. So looks like 91, he was just training people. Maybe they did some like closed student shows, but yeah, from what I, from what I, looked up it was pretty much in 91 he was just running the school and yeah doing student shows if anything out of there um but it wasn't until 95 from what i can see from everything from cage match from the observer um from other notes that is when he really started to branch out and run shows outside of haywood and from everything i'm seeing from the results like he's running didn't really run didn't run in the city of oakland didn't run in the city of San Francisco, but he traveled out pretty much up to three hours in all directions, north, uh, east, and south of the Hayward area at that time in 95 and going on throughout the late 90s. Which, you know, we'll talk about as, as time goes on here, but like, you know, as we talk about Roland Alexander, there's going to be some positives, there's going to be some negatives, uh, but, you know, California we talk about how big the California independent scene was, you know, five, six, seven years ago with PWG and, and all that going on. And it, it, this was the beginning of the cornerstones because you got to think about it. Like in California, you had territories that were bought out very early by Vince. Like these were not like, like Vern, like holding on to the late eighties, early nineties or Memphis till 97. Yeah. Like these like he bought San Francisco and Los Angeles very early in the game. Well, he bought he bought L.A. like really really early. One of the first territories he bought, and Roy Shire. It was actually Shire went out of business because Vern came into the territory in I think eighty two or eighty three. Um, even before Vince started national expansion, Vern just got TV and started running there and. Um, I believe Shire went to the NWA and tried to get help, and the NWA is basically like, nah, we're not going to help you. Yeah. So Shire pretty much just closed up shop and 
San Francisco, Oakland area. The Bay Area was more of just open open territory. But yeah, there was no there's there's still some fans there that remember the old Shire thing, but at that time there hadn't been a dedicated territory yeah. in that area for 10, 15 years. Like the big promotions would run California, but there wasn't like anybody consider, Yeah, you know. Yeah, WWE WWE always did well in Oakland. They were running there I think every four weeks, maybe, uh, on a regular basis, and drew pretty well. Like their TV did well, but WWE and Indies are different; are both different yeah. animals. Um, so in 1995, on May 1st, this is from the Observer, uh, and remember, Meltzer and Roland Alexander, are close friends before the 90s. So there's a lot of good. He, like when he was doing something, he called Dave. He let Dave know. Yeah, a lot of a lot of the stuff that Dave reported on there, we have tend to believe it to be accurate, at least coming from Roland, because yeah. Meltzer wouldn't just make either wouldn't take third hand knowledge. I'm sure he called Roland directly and got quotes and confirmed all of this. So on May first, uh, nineteen ninety five, Roland Alexander started to regularly run shows in Northern California, mainly using trainees for his re- from his wrestling school in Hayward, and on occasion, Buddy Rose and Moon Dog and Moretti. Uh, and then just uh, for example, like so, this one he was starting to travel a little bit out of the garage. Upcoming dates are April twenty eighth in Escalon, uh, April twenty ninth in Gilroy, May sixth in Altaville, May twelfth in Stockton, May thirteenth in Mendota, May nineteenth in Sutter Creek, May twentieth in Colina. And uh, May 27th in Linden. Now, and, and th- those are a good distance away yes. from each other, too. So he's expanding out. He's not just running like the suburbs of Oakland. Like he's branching out. Well, one of the great things about Northern California is, is there's a lot of nice mid sized markets. Other, obviously, San Francisco and Oakland are, San Francisco is a very big market. Oakland's not too far behind. But then you have, Sacramento and San Jose and even Stockton to a point like Stockton is got, you know, and you got to remember too, this is also Silicon Valley. Yeah. You you know, so like Fresno, how far is Fresno from that area? Uh, Fresno's not Southern, right? Fresno's like more Northern, isn't it? No, I think so. Let me, uh, live radio here. Yeah. It's, uh, Oh, it's it's two and a half hours. All right, but just, two and a half hours like southeast. So that's that's still doable. Yeah, but like to my point, like there's plenty of areas, plenty of potential. So it's crazy that it really we Shire goes out of business in like '82, and it's not till 1995 that we really hear reports of somebody going, "I'm going to run shows in these towns." Yeah, <laughs> like it's crazy to think about that. Uh, and I mean, that's, it, that's it, the it, thing about California, man. It was they're always kind of behind a little bit. Yeah, because it followed uh, – it would probably be a discussion for another episode, another episode that what grew the Northeast independent scene was WWE expanding, doing their natural expansion, and they stopped running high school gyms and all these small, these small middle-nowhere towns in Jersey and upstate New York. And that's when small indies popped up to fill that void. And it seemed – like that happened in the early to mid-80s, and now – Ten years later, it's happening in California. Now, one of my favorite things about this is is that he's giving out programs at these shows, right? And Meltzer says they're some of the most professional uh, programs I ever saw. But he gives ratings for his top ten heavyweight or top fifteen heavyweights and uh, top junior heavyweights. Now, nineteen ninety five, May nineteen ninety five, you're going to an APW show. 
And this is what you're told the top heavyweights in the promotion. <laughs> They're Vader, Takata, Kawada, Kobashi, Severin, uh, Albright, Hase, Hansen, Williams, Mike Modest. They're the actual only guy that worked there. Masawa, uh, Douglas, Shane Douglas, uh, Terry Funk, Hashimoto, and Mudo. <laughs> and then in the top junior heavyweights, you got Benoit, Shawn Michaels, <laughs> Eddie Guerrero, uh, Dan Crawford, Sabu, Liger, uh, uh, Hio Del Santo, Myster- Rey Mysterio Jr., Ultimo Dragon, Malenko, Polita, uh, Polito Suicida, One Two Three Kid, and Super Diablo, who worked there, <laughs> uh, Negro Casas, and then Matt Heisen, who we know as Spike Dudley, who who uh, who was there, and they said uh, they'll be holding tournaments to crown champions in the near future. <laughs> I think it's more of just realizing, all right, I probably have some smart fans, so I'm going to list a top 15 and throw in some of my guys in there. But it's quite interesting that you threw Modest in there as a heavyweight when Modest always like skirted the line between heavyweight and junior heavyweight, especially like considering he put Chris Benoit and Shawn Michaels in junior and Modest in heavyweight. So- I think it was more of trying to get into the fans' eyes that – Modest, this guy is a heavyweight contender. Oh, well, I, first off, I totally get putting Mike Modest in there and, and, and putting Spike Dudley in there and all that. But my, my thing with this is is that, yes, you said there were some smart fans, which I totally understand. But you and I both know that in 1995, the independent wrestling crowd was not going to be smart fans. Oh, no. It was, you had to get like, Somebody who goes to their local barbershop and they go, oh, former WWF superstar Tito Santana or former <laughs> WWF star uh, yeah. Bruce Bar Beefcake. Like that, that was the way of the model in 95. You had your local guys, your local students, and then you put a WWF, former WWF guys in the main event. And, you know, maybe it was a little different in California. Like, but like his, he doesn't have these guys booked, but still, like, if I'm a common fan, right? I just, you know, I watch WWF every week and I watch WCW and then I'm like, Takata, Kawada, Kobashi, Dan Severin. You don't know what these guys are. You know, like, Gary Albright, who? Like, I'm not saying me personally, like, I know all of it. I'm just saying, like, it's weird that he would, like, do that, I think. Like, I also think, like, he. I think he also pointed out, like, he tried to get more smart fans because if you go through the Observer during this era, the Observer always listed not only results from APW, but also listed, oh, Rowan Alexander of Hayward, California is running these dates. Like, almost every week that Meltzer is listing dates and how to get tickets. So, Roland definitely wanted to get those smart well, fans yeah. to come in. Like, I don't know how many. St- how many subscribers to the observer were in Northern California that would probably be a lot considering that's Meltzer's home base, but like he definitely tried to go for that, which like if, if we look at the results from some of those early shows, there were mostly students, but I don't mean students like six weeks in you're you're on the show, oh, but the, the Mike Modises, the Matt Heisens, you know, uh, yeah. guys like that, the, the Rick Thompson's and, yeah, like guy. There's the Robert Thompson. Sorry. Yeah, there's there's some guys that have been around the local indie scene around that area for a little while. But yeah, they're mostly, uh, mostly his guys. And uh, I know Meltzer did point out later on where uh, 
his business model at this point was throughout like the mid to late nineties was the, the shows were a loss leader. Like the school is what made the serious money and he would run these shows two, three hours away and lose money on these shows. But it's basically a advertisement or a three hour commercial for the wrestling school. And, and you got to get these guys experience or your school's not going to like, you got to promise guy match guys. Well, matches. That, that too. You know that too. Um, from what, um, from what APW school promised was, you you pay this you pay this cost you pay is six grand or sixty five hundred, and we will train you and we'll give you some matches. The promise of some matches. So these shows, these loss leader shows, are also to give these these trainees spots on shows to fulfill that contract, fill that obligation, but also from how it was looked upon by Roland and others were if they can get if they run a show at a high school gym three hours away and they convince one person to pay six grand to train, then the show was a success. Yeah, that's and and like and and here's another thing that he's kind of innovative. Like, I think this is the beginning of the era of it's a little easier to get in the business. Now it gets much easier five, 10 years down the line, 15 years down the line. But like they always say it's the secret society and you kind of had to know somebody or like, you know, one of the guys in the business, like I think like Scott Hall tells a story was a Barry Wyndham saw him like in a grocery store and go, Hey kid. Yeah. I want you to meet, you know, this guy, like there was like Larry Sharp, like he was about it. And even that wasn't like out there on a, out there and, and known you had to you had to know someone to get in yeah well it's funny i remember watching like i was going through old news clips which I'll, we'll have one about Roland alexander which i'll talk about in a little bit because it's in 96 but uh i remember watching old larry sharp one where they talk about all the great oh look look at all these great stars like Bam bigelow and jt southern like all these other guys. and but they never mentioned how to sign up for the school they just go look. The, this is a wrestling school. This is what these guys yeah. do. And, uh, yeah, they never mentioned us. But it was also like during that time, uh, I I posed this on uh, on Twitter earlier in the week uh, when I was actually doing these notes of like back then it was like yeah you have a school like W three Power Plant and a lot of other schools where you pay your two thousand dollars three thousand dollars up front and they will the trainers will work you till you quit they will put you through cardio drills and just as much as they can to force you to quit and if you if you don't quit then they know all right this guy's got something and then they can go easy on you but most of them like they're going to get a class of 20 people they're going to try to weed out 15 of them because also partly they don't want to teach 20 guys well yeah so like but that was always that style and the question i pose on twitter is like when did it change from that to the current pay-as-you-go system now roland is definitely still charging upfront costs but from every, everything i've but seen it's a deposit but everything i've seen like he his trainers didn't try to work you and try to make you quit at first like it was kind of like that medium of like 
yeah, you have to pay up front, but we're going to work with you. You don't need a perfect body, but you know, if you're not getting, if you're not understanding something, or you're not getting it. You're not going to be left behind. One and thing I think that was a big change in yeah in schools at that time. Well, one thing he says too. So he mentions a couple things on Art Wrestling and Cole Cabana that that he did uh, years ago. So he mentioned first off that he actually paid his instructor five hundred dollars and paid his assistant instructor like two hundred fifty dollars. Right. So what when he was doing that. Nobody on the East Coast was doing that. Like, the East Coast instructors would not pay that much money. I remember Simon Diamond, he said Simon Diamond actually, like, got mad when he found this out and, like, confronted Jim Kettner. <laughs> like, yeah. he goes, what is going on here? Like, like the, the, this guy's getting 500 a month for to, to be an instructor and all that. And I think that because there's consistent money flow every month, that was how Roland could do something like that. And and mind you, that doesn't seem like a lot of money and, and it isn't, but I mean, if a guy's working regularly, he probably also has a day job and he's good. I mean, look at Mike modest, for example. So we're skipping, we're jumping ahead a little bit, but in nine, you know, 98, 99, Mike modest is MB on mat. So he's getting 500 a month to be the trainer. He's living in that, that uh, garage, which may have been rent free because from, like what Roland says, Roland gave it free for Spike Dudley to do office work. Yeah. If he did office work, he could live there for free. And then he's also got the, the day job at the funeral or whatever. And That's he started not a bad doing, living. <laughs> like, yeah. And he was a top guy, so he was making three figures on the shows. Like two 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 fifty around that from I think Meltzer confirmed, like top guys were getting that. So like he yeah, he was doing quite well at that point. And then as soon as he got to Noah, he was definitely doing well too. Yeah, but just to the point where it's like I think it's one of those things that like you can't say specifically Roland Alexander was the first because we don't know everything going on because there wasn't internet as much as common. But he looks like he could have been the first to start that model. He may have been the one. (laughs) Yeah, do the pay as you go. Um, I know like like Les Thatcher was too and everything HWA and all that. Which, but but like I. It seems like earliest science point to Roland being one of the first, especially the first in the West Coast, yeah, to do something like that. I mean, he, you still have to pay the full amount even if you quit, which that will come up much later in the stories when we get to a certain lawsuit. But yeah, like, we'll 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 yeah. move on from that. Um, but like the the like the school I went to, like it was the same. There was a hundred a month, and if you. If you decide you don't want to do it anymore, you don't owe any more. If you come back, it's still going to be 100 a month. And there's a lot of schools in the area in the upstate New York area that run like that too. Um, that seems to be the standard going forward of that and like that whole situation, the whole thing of just pay this and you know, pay four figures is kind of gone by the wayside. I mean just to give kind of an example, you know – at this point, until he charges 65 a little bit later, but at this point, he, in 95, up until at least beyond the math time, he's charging 5500 Now, it looked like that was for over a two-year program, not a year or so. I mean, the, when you break that up, it seems a little more reasonable, but in today's money, that's $9,400. Uh, a little under, ninety three, ninety one. dollars So basically, you're paying you know, almost 4500 bucks a, a year to train to be a wrestler. And he did mention too, and this is what, this is what I love. This guy was all about the money, right? And he charged a lot of money. 
he said he had a chance to be accredited program, but but it was two thousand dollars and it was too expensive for him. Are you kidding me? Like, like you would have made first off, you would have made the two K back so quickly by becoming an accredited program. That like, I mean, look at OVW right now. Al Snow has breathed life back into OVW school by offering that trade accredited program. Yeah, which is crazy that no one's tried that until now. From from and Rome. and and, and that's that. If we're talking about that, uh, we're talking about accredited. So it it mentions it later on, but it it's relevant right now that uh, you didn't have to pay that full fifty five hundred or six grand up front. Uh, and he mentioned it kind of beyond the mat. You put $500 down and you do payment plans. But Rowan Alexander, being all about the money and all about the numbers, charged interest. So Brian Ung, which we'll learn about later on, he was charged 18% interest. Uh, I've seen uh, other people claim that he's done interest rates as high as 82%. So... Uh, can you imagine eighty two percent interest? That I so I looked. I ended up looking it up. What a student loan interest rate was in the year two thousand. Just because if he was, he looked at it. He wanted to be like a trade school for wrestling. He tried to get a credit. So like that's about around that. So student loan rates were eight percent. So even if he was going for that, he was charging over double that at the bare minimum. So, like, that's really, really carny at that point. Like, even even charging that loan, like, I know, like, there's been some schools, like a school I went to, too, that, like, they do payment plans, but it really wasn't interest. It was more of, you know, we, we want to help you out. We're good people and not overcharging you for that. Like, that's ridiculous. I was talking um, to our producer, Matt, before uh... – before we actually uh, recorded today. Uh, by the way, thank you once again to Matt Johnson, the podcast precinct, and uh, the BICBP uh, radio network for always having us. But uh, I was talking to him before, and I was talking about how one of the reasons why this guy was able to kind of, I don't want to say get away, because it sounds like like a lot of people admire Roland, and we're going to talk about that later. But, like, it's supply and demand, right? And I talk about California was so behind. You couldn't charge $5,500 in Massachusetts. You couldn't charge $5,500 in New York or Florida, North Carolina, whatever. But you were able to do it in California because there wasn't a lot going on. He straight out says on our wrestling, he goes, he says that every wrestling school is the shits. We are the best. And then he says, he goes, his biggest thing was that I run, you know, I run my wrestling like a business. You know, I, I'm I'm all about business. The, the, like, I don't like he goes, if maybe if I want to always run it for a business, maybe I would have made more money. But I ran it as the business to always hit the bottom line. Uh, and he would tell prospects who would go to a school. And he would say they're like, oh, well, there's this other school. And he'd be like, go, go watch them. Go, go watch them and come back. Because he knew I think he mentioned Cherimani school uh, specifically. He knew that. They would get better quality here or whatever. And then any – think about it. Any prospects who would go to Roland school and maybe see guys like Mike Modest and Matt Heisen or whatever, but then go down the road and maybe there's you know some untrained guys or stuff like that training people, he knows if that guy picks that school, it's somebody he doesn't want to have anyways. 
Yeah. Because it may not make their payments in time. They may quit. Like, you know. So he was very smart in that aspect. Very smart, I think. Well, he knew at least at that time, like, yeah, he ran the top school and he had name value behind him. He had guys that were working there and training there that had the name value. All right. So um, back to 1995 as a whole. Uh, I mean, this all kind of intertwines. But uh, uh, in October 1995, All Pro Wrestling is running uh, October 7th in Seaside, California. Most of the Roland Alexander crew, Matt Heisen, Mike Modest, Super Diablo, and Mike Diamond. Great crazy thing about super diablo is i can find this cage match he had a twitter but i can't find who it was <laughs> who actually worked under the super diablo moniker and then mike diamond which i'm assuming was probably related to the california paul diamond um and seaside is again south about 90 minutes south uh of hayward of of the bay area so like he's again branching out there in october 30th 1995 uh El, um, Meltzer says, I want to give a special thanks to Roland Alexander, Red Bastien, and the Pacific Coast Sports for putting together the Northern California Wrestlers Reunion on such short notice in October 20th. Among those appearing besides the wrestlers from the local independent promotion that trained at the school, a few of whom are surprisingly good considering how few matches they've actually had were Ray Stevens, Bastien, Pepper Gomez, Alexis Smirnoff, Dano O'Shocker, uh, the original Paul Diamond, Steve Pardee, Boondog Ed Moretti, Jerry Monty, Art Dominguez, uh, Mitsu Arakawa, um, who's, I believe, uh, headlined Rochera's first sellout crowd, the Cow Palace, Bob Bautwinkle, and the school trainer, Rick Thompson. It was really fun to see something to do with wrestling where everyone's heart is in the right direction and where neither money, uh, ego, nor greed had anything to do with anything but the guys who are just learning the ropes and guys who have been around getting to meet the people they grew up watching on television and or who around that they're even both from they learn watching tapes from. So, watching tapes of. So, here's, so we talk about it, right? He's running one of the first really well-known wrestling schools in California, especially Northern California. Is he the first wrestling convention run in California too? Or in California as a whole? Because that's mean, a wrestling convention. That's what we, we, we talk about, WrestleCade and WrestleCon. Yeah. And, I mean, John Arezzi's were in New York. Yeah, and Arezzi like, was the innovator. There's no doubt about yeah, that. Yeah, but not in California. So like he could very well have been, at least in, a, in the Northeast. Or in the, the Northern California, I mean. Um, no, he definitely like he wanted to pay respect to the people he grew up watching. And I think he also knew as a shrewd businessman that uh, these people still have name value and bringing them in and advertising them could help, uh, could help pop a house. And, and then also to think about it, like, oh man, wrestling's still here. Like if you see like all these guys that you watched in the seventies, you know, are, are, are coming back for a union and then you go, oh wait, wrestling's still happening. You know what I mean? Like, and then that kind of builds your, your active crowd. Oh yeah. And wrestling in the nineties was still similar to wrestling nowadays. You still have a good amount of middle-aged people that will complain about today's wrestling and how they miss the good old days when they grew up. And in this era, in the nineties would have been people who grew up in the seventies watching the Royal Shire mm -hmm. programs that just probably fell off because of the Hogan stuff and the steroid scandals and just like missed the old, the old timers. And we're talking 1995 where the business is down. For yeah. Everyone, you know, um, on 
April 2nd, 1996. Uh, Meltzer writes, I got a chance to see the local all-pro wrestling show on March 22nd in Aptos, California. It was basically a collection of guys training at Roland Alexander School in Hayward. The pauses where the guys were well-trained in building a match rather than just going out there and doing moves. And from an execution standpoint, they were way ahead of most indie workers I've seen. The most impressive guy to me was 360-pound Mike Shaw type named Joe Applebomber whose finisher, the Apple Bomb, is a combination of a Benoit and a Liger Bomb. Uh, when you see a guy that size with a Mike Shaw built on an indie show that is only about a dozen matches, you immediately expect the worst, and in this case, it was the opposite. In a battle royal, he was left with Matt Heisen, a Juventud Guerrero-sized wrestler, uh, for the last uh, minutes, and they worked a total believable st- series of spots, which of the fans uh, totally bought, including the small guy working winning at the end. The style was a combination of the Roy Shire style of work that I grew up on, uh, but incorporating Mexican flying spots. Cowboy Lang, who was in the semifinals of the second wrestling show I ever saw 25 years ago, was on the show. After seeing the Mexican minis, it makes uh, the old uh, American... Now, this was 1995, major stuff, but, you know, 1995 context. Uh, you know, uh, although Lang's opponent, Little Nasty Boy, did a good job. Uh, can we put Little Nasty Boy over Brian Knobs, by the way? <laughs> like, so, so I was going to do research on it, <laughs> but I believe that Little Nasty Boy is the same Little Nasty Boy that worked at Maximum Force Wrestling Show back about nine years ago here in Buffalo. Wow, that guy got that, around. Huh? It, it has to be because how many how many Nasty Boys? He, he defeated Mark Haas, uh, who is a six-foot-one normal-sized worker. And then had uh, local wrestler Rob Sweet dressed as a Arab come out with uh, local uh, ESW promoter Brett Mednick as the enforcer, as a big boss man ripoff, come out and attack Little Nasty Boy while the MFW's promoter, the alternate warpath, runs to the ring and takes five minutes to run to the ring while Little Nasty Boy is still getting beat down to make the save. It, um, it, yeah. it, it was it was quite a scene. I, I wish I was a part of that promotion during that time to see Little Nasty Boy. Um, a Little Nasty Boy did a good job. The negative was on a show that it lasted about three hours, which is too long for a spot show where people aren't into all angles from television, and the crowd was burned out by the main event. It also appeared that everyone on the show was still very free, and they actually talked about that in the program. Now, with long shows, all right, and it, obviously one of these days we'll talk about Frank Goodman. And uh, USA Pro Wrestling. Uh, oh, the, the, you mean the self-proclaimed best drawing fed in the history of New York State? Yes, yes. Uh, it's Is this one of those things like he's very early in the Genesis, right? 1995. So it's like I got to get these students on the show because they're paying. And, I, you know, even though, though, he does say, well, I'll talk about it, 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 it later on. He does say, like, he, he only you got matches after a year in. So you paid that, the, the you know, half of that 5,500, the, the 2275 or 22.5 to not get any matches. Uh, but I mean, and like I said, I mean, I get some people are ready earlier than others, whatever. It makes sense. But, um, but anyways, like, so you're trying to get these students on a show, but you're still in your early infancy. You haven't really built this. So you got to bring in st- little nasty boy and cowboy Lang and, you know, stuff like that. I think it, it's, no different than in today's wrestling where you run a spot show. Like if you run the major cities, you can work with, you can use super indie guys and like 
and your locals that can push that. But if you're running a small town in the middle of nowhere, you you need that legend. You need that name value. You need yeah. a Tito Santana. Or, you know, you need yeah. one of those those guys or a you know Greg Valentine. Um. On April 19, 1996, Roland Alexander and Pacific Coast Sports in Northern California are going to put together a two-day Northern California uh, pro wrestling reunion on uh, October 12th and 13th. Uh, for any former uh, wrestler interested in attending, you can contact Alexander. Um, and they gave the number, and all pro wrestling is running their shows at the Pacific Coast Sports Gym in Hayward on September 7th, September 28th. So it looks like he's looking to do the reunion again because it worked the first time. And then... Uh, and, and it was interesting, like... He put it out in the Observer. There was another, uh, there's another blip that I didn't put in here from the Observer where Meltzer was basically asking for him, like, "Hey, uh, if anyone has contact info for this guy," and they were listing like half dozen actually big names. I think Nick Bockwinkel was one of them. <laughs> Meltzer was asking if anyone knows contact information for Roland for this. So like he was actively trying to bring in some name talent that. Before the age of the internet, like no one it's hard, to get yeah, it's hard to find people to track people. Um, and in October 28, 1996, All Pro Wrestling did draw 1,078 fans uh, and a 16,115 uh, uh, hour gate. That's great for, for an independent, like in 1995, like or 1996, but uh, in Modesto, California, for tournaments to crown a heavyweight. Uh, Robert Thompson, junior heavyweight, Super Diablo champion. It was part of the weekend area legend celebration on the hand for the show where Pepper Gomez, uh, former area ref Frank Nosetti, Jerry Monti, Art Dominguez, and Paul DeMarco. Among those uh, at the barbecue the next day at the gym, you get a meet and greet barbecue in Haver, California, where uh, Teresa Thice, Jack Laskett, uh, Laskin, Moondog Moretti, Cowboy Lang, Fritz von Goring, Alexis Smirnoff, Dan O'Shocker, and Bob Bockwinkle. Their next show will be November 2nd at the Pacific Sports uh, uh, Gym in Hayward. And and, uh, and he puts it in a note that Raw on October 21st in Fort Wayne drew 4555 bucks for 62 grand. but Mike Diamond of All Pro Wrestling in California got a tryout losing to the late, great Tracy Smothers, but at that time known as Freddie Joe Floyd. Yeah, I I added that into the notes just because I think it was like it's kind of interesting that at this time like the all pro guys are starting to branch out and starting to get dark matches and drop spots. But it's quite interesting also that he's running a barbecue <laughs> the next day. But it's that meet like, and greet thing. Like, yeah, you see that now. Like you know what I mean. Like it's a lot of innovative stuff here. A lot of that, that that's kind of like a breaking kayfabe type things in the nineties. But yeah, it's innovative. For this time period, uh, on November 11, 1996, uh, Meltzer says that he caught the All Pro Wrestling Show at the gym in Hayward on November 2nd. These guys work hard, it kind of has a 70s flavor when it comes to the base in their match, but you'll see a lot of the more modern wild suplexes and topes thrown in. Uh, they are doing a tag title tournament on November 23rd. Now, so um, they're really like Meltzer really enjoyed them. I don't know how much of that was his friendship with Roland wanting to see it. He succeed, didn't really have like, anything in that area either, though, yeah. too. And I think he wanted to support it yeah, because of that. And, you know, Meltzer, if it's a close distance to him and it's good, I mean, we talk about like Meltzer's helping APW. He did the same thing for PWG. Yeah. You know, like... It, like he would watch all the PWG yeah. shows. He didn't go to every one of them, but like he still made the trip down for a good amount of them. You know, so it's if it's in his area and he thinks it's worth talking about, he'll he'll talk about it. Um, 
So w- one thing uh, I did want to uh, to mention while we're in 1996 here was uh, as I was doing some research, um, I stumbled upon a news uh, piece, and it was from 1996 for WCOVR uh, Channel 13, uh, and and that's in Sacramento, California. All right. Uh, w, uh, or, oh, t- sorry, KOVR. I'm thinking of this radio. KOVR, uh, Channel 13, getting answers in Sacramento, uh, California. But, uh, so they're interviewing him and it. They also interview, uh, Modest, uh, at the time. And Modest is listed as a trainer. So already in 1996, he, he's a trainer. Um, and they list like, they interview a couple of the students at that time. Uh, but these are some quotes that I took from that article or from that, from that, uh, that news piece. So, Alexander says, some people have been in the business seven and ten years and haven't got signed, let alone a contract. The reason why I put that in there was a lot of wrestling bookers. I'm not bookers, wrestling gym trainers and and you know, gym owners, training school owners will use that as an excuse to keep you going, to paying your rent there and to staying on student shows and, and all that. A lot of guys that might not have the look or the body or the wrestling style, you use that as a dangling carrot to be like, well, look, this this guy is really good, and he hasn't gotten signed yet, so like, it just takes time. I'll keep this very vague, beca- <laughs> very indescriptive, because like, not a lot of people have come out against this guy as far as his tactics, but there is a certain former WWF legend who runs a wrestling school in the New York City area who is very notorious for this. I had a friend that trained there and was there for three years, and he, he would not let him work a match outside of his school shows. And my friend was in good shape, and he was, but he wasn't from New York. He was from Buffalo, and he couldn't sell tickets, so he was out there just basically getting squashed by guys that were worse than him but sold 25 tickets. Earl Cooter was never in WWE. <laughs> not, Earl, not Earl Cooter. Okay. I will tell you off air because I don't think it's my place because it's it was totally not well it's not well known yeah it was totally confidence I mean it is kind of known about this guy but it's not talked about I mean I could say the same thing about Alpha just because like that's WXW stuff is out there yes where uh, it's been known where if you if you're a trainer if you pay to train at his school that you have to keep paying there and you can't go out and work other shows. You can only work his shows even after he said you're ready to go work shows. So that's kind of also similar where they're, you're kind of beholden to the trainer and the school. Yeah. So that's why I notated that because that's another thing that's in a lot of use in a lot of modern wrestling schools. Oh, I don't think you're ready. Whatever. You know, she keep and, – and you remember, he says it's a two-year program. But that doesn't mean he – after two years, he wants him to leave. So it may be like, oh, yeah, but now like, hey, you still should pay me – so much month a month for the gym, the gym time and stuff like that. And hey, Mike Modest has an advanced class, and that's probably what was going on. Not saying that he was trying to hold people back because he wasn't, but I don't think he wanted to have guys who just could be in and out. Well, no, that's that's a thing with wrestling schools, which it existed eighteen years ago when I started, and it still exists today. Where you get trainees, your kids that are paying to train and they're really into wrestling. And as soon as they get their first match, they stop showing up to training because they believe I'm in the business. Now I have my first match. I don't need to train anymore. So I could see 
a guy like Roland and some of these other trainers just being like, you kind of string them along a little bit just to keep them coming to school. And yes, that's beneficial for the school, but it can also be beneficial for the wrestler too. Like you're still learning. Um, also on this news piece, he said it was a $5,500 price tag for the school in 1996, which we broke up to, you know, um, to w- what it would be like ni- uh, over nine grand, uh, 9300 And then he said it was a two-year program. I would give you matches one year in. That's what he said, depending on how ready you are. And then he says in the last 18 months, now this is 1996, he said in the last 18 months he placed three people in major promotions. But didn't say who. There is no one in 1996. It's 97, 98, 99 that Spike and Vic Grimes and Crash Holly. Yeah. Nobody in 1996 is in a unless he's going to count extra work and tryouts. And, I mean, it could be. But that's what he said. And, and, and on the news piece, too, he specifically says that the major promotions are WWF, WCW, ECW. So he's not... Oh, he's not counting an NWA territory. Some people go, oh, I worked for the NWA yeah. as a major promotion or or, or, DD, or a Japan you know, promotion or anything like that. But one thing I did find, one thing I couldn't find online, I couldn't find like the actual gym hours of operation. Like were they only open three nights a week? Were they open five nights a week? Like that's the one thing I couldn't find because when you say – after a year, you're going to give matches. I think that's about that's even long for like in today's wrestling, where if you have a school and someone's going twice a week, like by six to eight months, if you're going twice a week, you should be able to be picking it up really well. I know during this time, Al Snow's school, Body Slammers, did a six week course, at least six, maybe eight, but like they were doing a course where you're. Tr- you live there at the school and you're training eight hours a day, Monday through Friday, and you're ready by in six weeks. So I'm wondering, like, how often did they train at APW and they couldn't get you ready for a match prior to that one year mark? Yeah, I, I don't know. And, and it's weird, too, because, like, a lot of the guys lived there, you know, so, like, you would think, like, if you're living somewhere and you're not making a lot of money in your shoot job, wouldn't you want to be like, yeah, every, yeah, you know what? I know it's not a formal thing, but come Wednesday, pay me twenty bucks. We'll go over this. Like you would think, like Modest and Grimes and and, and Spike would probably do that stuff. You know what I mean? Yeah. Especially with the beginners, like, oh, yeah, I know there's not a formal school on Wednesday. You know, I'm thinking that some of that may have happened. Oh yeah, I've I've seen schools do that too, where like an assistant trainer or someone that's in the business, but not an actual trainer would be like were asked the school owner or the head trainer be like, Hey, can we open up just for free ring time on this yeah. day? And like, I'm not saying like everyone should be ready after, like they need to be ready after a year. And like, everyone's going to take everyone's their own different. time. Everybody is everyone's different. different. But even in today's wrestling, if you're like, if your schedule only allows you to go once a week to a school by even within six months, if, you're doing a battle royal. If it's, yeah, yeah, if you're doing a battle royal, or if a school is doing shows out of their school, which obviously Jim Wars they are, APW is, like you're not getting a squash match or something by that is kind of kind of weird. Um, well, maybe it was just that. Hey, I already got a year of your money now. Uh, you know what I mean? Now I know you're dedicated. You know, and then you got them committed. You know what I yeah. mean? And, and then you like look, look at Modest. Modest goes there as a student. 
pays that money, but then he becomes the trainer, and then he has Modest for a long time until Modest breaks up. He's for 10 years, yeah. Yeah, so that's what he was trying to create. And he mentions, you know, he's, he's trying to build he mentions in this too, like he wants to build character for guys. It's not just a wrestling school. He wants to make them better men, you know, and all that. So, well, yeah, and you're still going to always learn. You're, yeah. you're going to learn something every time you go to a training class. So like it's, it helps you, but I'm just, I'm still just questioning that it's taking a year before he can give people matches when he's running student shows. Like that's, I think that's a little bit long, but real quick from the news article too, or news, news piece. I keep calling it article because we usually quote articles here. The news piece is he mentions the three major people in the promotions. When he does be on the mat, he says two people. So he, he, it is essential the Sacramento TV piece was a commercial, and he, and I think he fibbed a little bit. <laughs> he, he fibbed a little bit to go, hey, come to the wrestling school and all that. Yeah. I mean, there was a wrestling school in upstate New York that once claimed that three people from the school made a WWE and like, Technically, yes, but it was two of them spent almost a decade going out working Shikara and other places to get that spot. So, like, you can you can fudge the numbers a little bit and saying this guy was an original guy here, but like, what you taught them didn't one hundred percent get them there. Yeah. Um. So now we're into nineteen ninety seven. Uh, January 27, 1997, All Pro Wrestling out of Northern California drew a strong crowd of 1,214 in Turlock, California with all local wrestlers. So now he's growing where he doesn't have to use names at all. But see, this time, like, wrestling's starting to get, get up. Out, like, they had yeah. the NWO, NWO the Wars. Yep. So it's starting to get up there. And Turlock, like, I looked it up, it's halfway between Stockton and Fresno. So I wouldn't assume that it's a big town. But what else is going on in Turlock? Like... So obviously they're like wrestling. Let's see. Okay, well, population for Turok is in 2000 was uh, fifty five thousand. It's a pretty decent sized city, but like they don't have any major sports teams, so there's really nothing going on. So that that's a really decent draw. Is twelve hundred. Um, on April seventh, nineteen ninety seven, at the All Pro Wrestling uh, Gym Wars uh, uh, matches on. Uh, March 20th in Hayward. Promoter Roll Alexander talked about bringing in Gary Albright, Rey Mysterio Jr., and Psychosis. The idea is to run a uh, weekend in congestion uh, with indie promoter Kirk White. The two are working together, but it appears they're building up for a promotion versus promotion angle as well, where they'd split trans costs on guys and run shows in Fremont and Hayward. Very smart idea. Um, uh, but at this point, Mysterio and Psychosis... Were you even able to get them? Like, I know they were in Mexico. I mean, we got to talk about how dysfunctional the WCW was, and they could probably. I think, I, yeah, I think we mentioned on a previous show that they weren't they weren't actually legally allowed to work in Mexico, but <laughs> yeah. Conan would cover for them and just and Conan would book them down there in his own feds just because uh, WCW didn't keep track of anything. So it could very well have been the same thing. Maybe he thought. Maybe maybe Conan convinced him, like, "Oh yeah, I can get these guys." Like, <laughs> no. Uh, and on uh, June thirtieth, nineteen ninety seven, uh, All Pro Wrestling will be running its next show on July fourth at the Pacific Coast Sports Gym uh, at Hayward, California, starting at ten p.m. to crown a new champion between Donovan Morgan. It's the first time we start hearing about Morgan and Mike Modest. Uh, they'll be doing a tailgate party in the parking lot starting at six p.m. to watch local fireworks shows. 
So like, so the show starting at 10 p.m. So you do a tailgate party to watch the fireworks, then go in and watch wrestling. Like that's that's something different. I think it's wrestling. a really good like. I like that though because like, it's not going to be a kid show. You know, it's Fourth of July. Yeah. Some people work July 5th, but I think you're going to get your drunk, your rowdy fans. But it may make for a yeah. great environment. And it also shows the pos- the the positives of having your own building. That you could just run whenever you want. There's no, there's no restrictions. It's not like booking an American Legion and having to be out there by a certain time. Uh, on July 28th, 1997, uh, I was at an all pro wrestling show on July 18th in Hayward, California for a false count anywhere match between Vic Grimes and Aaron O'Grady, also known as Crash Holly. Since I was kind of told ahead of time uh, something would happen uh, that I should see. Well, the match largely took place outside the gym with the guys brawling up and down the street and the parking lot, bashing each other on trees and cars, knocking over signs with liberal uh, usage of garbage cans, a shovel, and a rake. Uh, there was a Hernan off the car in the parking lot, shades of uh, Ray or Mysterio, and he has Hoovy here, but it was psychosis. Uh, you know, in Philadelphia. Anyway, the sixth spot is to this building is is that O'Grady got in a car and was going about thirty miles an hour uh, estimated uh, with the driver door open and ran over Grimes with the door as he drove by him. Oh yeah, and within thirty seconds, Grimes had kicked out of a pin attempt on the asphalt and was back up with an offense and ended up winning a match. Uh, a few minutes later, back in the ring, uh, he appeared to be uh, unhurt by the stump, but I feel like the, fear those who will try and copycat it, since it's everything that gets attention to wrestling is eventually God copied. Goddamn cosplay wrestling. <laughs> yeah. No oh, selling. Oh, also, we want to mention Robert Thompson, a local second-generation wrestler who's good enough worker to go somewhere. His wrestling base and move-to-move transitions are solid, and his high-flying ranges from good to exceptional, complete with having a moonsault off the top rope to the floor in his regular arsenal. Now, and I and just want to preface the school itself because I double checked on Google Maps. Like the school itself is an industrial zone, so there's a bunch of like side streets, but it's all just warehouses on the street. So there's not a lot of cars driving by, especially on like a Saturday night when there's no businesses open. So it's there's no risk of any like they're not fighting into a major interstate or like local houses. But still, that's kind of for for this time period. That that's kind of I don't want to say revolutionary, but kind of dangerous. So there was a right, so like as we were reading this, I was thinking about it. Like, so you did have something similar in '96 with Piper and Goldust when they were doing the back lap brawl yeah. and, and the car chase and all that. But then you know you had ECW and they would do like like I said, you know, Ray and Psychosis and stuff like that. But like. Yeah, I think it is revolutionary in the aspect of, like, two, three years later, everyone's getting hit by cars. <laughs> it's yeah. Goldberg and Steve Austin. And, and cars become, like, such a focal point of pro wrestling. And Roland Alexander didn't come up with this idea, but he was kind of innovative to have that. And I mean, both these guys, you know, ended up having careers with, tele, tele, you know, television promotions, national promotions. So, I mean, it was maybe the right two guys, but... I immediately thought of uh, GCW's backyard <laughs> wrestling where they did the car spots, <laughs> where Jimmy Lloyd gets hit by the car. I mean, uh, yeah, yeah uh, that's immediately I thought of. But I mean, this is the, the only thing I can think of. Though when I say like dangerous, is that you don't have video screens 
So the fans are following you out, and the fans are like close by when this happened. So there's a lot of room for mistake here. Like oh. this is definitely something where, in today's wrestling, I wouldn't dare try just because of that. Unless you do it beforehand in a closed environment and you film it and it airs like earlier today type thing. Like having something live like that, you're gonna run a risk of something bad happening or, or fans getting involved. Um. On the side note of this, too, Robert Thompson, I was really surprised to see how much of a focal point he was of that school. And to Roland's credit, we whether they worked for WWE, WCW, ECW or not, we know pretty much almost every single one of these guys. Like, you know, if you're listening to this show, you know who Mike Modest is. I mean, and not just beyond the map, but just all his work in the California independence and, and, you know, ring of honor and all that. Same thing with Donovan Morgan, you know, who Donovan Morgan is, you know, independence and and ring of honor and, you know, pro wrestling Noah for both, both those guys. Like you're, you're, you're very aware of them. Obviously you're aware of Aaron O'Grady as crash Holly, Vic Grimes, uh, also known as key (laughs) in a short (laughs) run. Uh, but you're, you're, you're also very aware of, um, uh, this gave me out. You're very aware of Spike Dudley. Like, so you know, these guys, you, you've seen these guys, but Robert Thompson, man, he did some job spots for WWE and WCW, but other than that, it's APW and then maybe yeah. some, some NWA territories, but the other indies, like, he never really got out there. And uh, like we said, like, he's second generation. He's Rick Thompson's son. So the original APW trainer following his father's footsteps here. But, yeah, he did He did some WWE job spots, lost his Tatanka uh, in 96 on Superstars. Uh, he actually did some stuff in 93. Uh, he lost to Money, Inc., and then again lost to Head Shrinkers for just job spots. So he, he got around. He did some WCW in 98. So, uh, but that's about it. Yeah. He never worked as far as I could tell, like never worked any other, never worked ECW, never worked any other top Indies, just APW. And I'm assuming just the Indies around and the, the West coast. I think we may have got our answer kind of to the question here. Um, so, Meltzer states that uh, the All Pro show did an angle involving Robert Thompson, who got an offer from a job from ECW stemming from our recommendation, but turned it down because he's got a one-year-old daughter. In the angle, Thompson acted as if it would be his final match in APW, gave the speech putting over ECW in the pay-per-view show, but then said he was staying. Also on that show, there was a match with Michael Modest versus Aaron O'Grady, which was a better match than anything on the last three pay-per-view shows um i don't know how much of that i believe or it might be just the angle but uh hearing from like part of when i was going down the rabbit hole get the notes i actually i i got into aaron grady or crash holly's obituary and reading like how he got into ecw and hearing like how how rough that was to start out with where living like living in his car and or his rv and uh like how much money that he made like how low that was and just like sacrificing what he had to do for ECW 
I could definitely believe that Robert Thompson had a kid and found out how much ECW was paying and decided not to go. Um, especially like if you if you're positioned in California, yeah, in the Bay Area, you have a job, you have a day job where you're paying you paying your bills, you have a kid at home. The option of move to the East Coast and travel every weekend for twenty, thirty, forty dollars, and like. And not have any other prospects for a job at that moment, like that definitely could weigh on you. Um, and it, it's it, you know, and if you're listening to Rome, look up Robert Thompson, uh, Robert Thompson wrestler. Because uh, if you don't look at Robert, if you look just Robert Thompson, other stuff pops <laughs> up. But uh, and, and you can find his stuff and all that. But it, one of the beautiful things I love doing about the show is you kind of find those guys that like they probably should have made it, or they slipped through the cracks. Where in today's world, the internet. It's hard for someone to slip through the cracks. It really is. There's so many layers yeah. of of it wrestling at this point that yeah, it's pretty hard. Like you would, you you'd be out there somewhere, but like during this time, there was like WWE, WWE, WCW, and just about everything else. Like everything else is below that. So yeah, there's a lot of guys like Christopher Daniels. Like we'll talk later is obviously prime prime yep. example of that too like 10 years work in california indies before he really gets out there yeah so that that's just crazy robert thompson just one of those guys that slipped through the cracks um on uh september 15 1997 uh the group is pl- in the planning stages of opening a wrestling school in seattle and begin running shows in the state of washington I don't know how much of that is just Roland just bragging to Mauter over stuff or how much, if there's any truth in that because I didn't find anything else about that. Only thing I could think of, I'm surprised he didn't go for Portland with knowing Buddy Rose. and Oregon still had the strict commission at that point. But I, I'm just talking school wrestling school-wise because Portland fair. had a school, but then they, they sent guys to Washington and Northern California. Yeah, I mean, I fair. Like, in, I, in, I guess you could, yeah, you could run a school. You could run a school, and you're within a few. Like, if you're running, running in Hayward, and you're running shows three hours away from your school, it's not that big of a a thing that's to convince trainees to be like, all right, in Oregon, like, all right, we're traveling to Cal- Northern California or Southern Washington to do shows. Um, now this could be something. I, I'm loving to get into right here. On October 20th, 1997, the next All Pro Wrestling Show in Hayward uh, on October 18th will be a netcast live on AOL streaming on 10 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. So this is one of those things we talked about by him being an innovator, and we're not 100% sure, but we're pretty much sure. Is he the first independent wrestling promotion and maybe wrestling promotion in general to do streaming to stream show their show over the internet visually. Cause I think WCW is doing it audio wise at this point. Yeah. But visually is he the first? He might have been. Yeah. We don't like WWE was know, doing, WWE was doing an AOL thing, but they were doing, I don't know if they had a video elements, but I know they were doing like AOL chats. You could see that when you're watching the old uh, pay-per-views on the network. You see all those guys. and Ken Shamrock trying to figure out how to use a computer. And then uh, I, I, I do like – and then like I remember WCW doing, especially 97, they would do those like, hey, we have a house show in Tampa Bay, but you can listen to it on the you know, AOL. Or, you know, so. Yeah, WCW was doing that. They did like a Boston Garden show where yeah. they were doing the audio Boston cast. Too. I think Madden did it. Yeah, Mark Madden was involved in that. But um, it very well could be. Because Roland did say, I think it was during the Art of Wrestling 
uh, interview that he did say, like, he, I think Colt can, said he was, like, the first wrestling company on AOL, the first indie fed. Yeah. Uh, later on, uh, Brian Alvarez has said that, um, that the APW student show matches were on a streaming website, a video website called Click Movie. So that was in the early 2000s. So I'm wondering, I don't know anything about that. I'm afraid to type that into my browser <laughs> at, at this point. But like there was, if I remember right, like during back there, there's a lot of those weird websites where you could go to and just see amateur video and free movies and stuff like that. Like it was all in real player. So the quality wasn't yeah. good, but it's still, someone has to be the first. It's it's so innovative. And now we got IWTD. <laughs> like yeah, we're we're watching independent wrestling cr- promotions from all over the world. It, it's it's and this is you know we're gonna talk. We talk about Roland how he he was kind of a card. He like you know what I mean like he wanted his money. You better pay, paid him the money. Like you know there's even a, you know point beyond the map. Make sure you pay me. Like, but he was so innovative with the way he modeled his wrestling school with you know the, the, the AOL streaming the conventions like. This is stuff that's such a big part of pro wrestling now. Yeah. And he's on an island in California doing it. And you know, like other people may have been doing it, but like I, I can't stress enough how in a pre social media world, how secluded California was from the rest of professional wrestling and the West Coast in general. Yeah. It was not like you know, Scorpio Sky should have been signed fifteen years ago, but he wasn't because of how secluded california was yeah you know so but i digress uh um uh march 16th 1998 uh it's a three dollar off deal here's something totally new uh for me after attending live uh live wrestling for 27 years i was at all pro this is for Meltzer. i was all pro wrestling any show in hayward california on march 6th the first few matches weren't good and the card itself was probably one of the worst I've attended from this group, which usually puts on a very entertaining show for, for a group on this level. God knows we've seen a lot worse. Anyway, uh, promoter Alexander came out and said he was embarrassed by the show up to that point, and he told everyone to save their ticket stubs and for $3 off, and then afterwards everyone was freely admitting what a terrible show it was. I mean, but after attending shows, tons worse, and I have everyone involved afterwards try to convince me that the shows were great, it was definitely something different. I mean, being this a is car- where you get that honesty, though. Being that county promoter, he, yeah, he's being honest. Like, look, I know this is, I know this is a shitty show. Here's some money back, but also, like, as we learned on Beyond the Mats, like, if you if you're a wrestler and you had a bad match, you weren't getting paid. Yeah. So it, I think he could probably afford that because probably no one on the show got paid. That and, and and that that's what probably happened. I mean, he said it on Beyond the Mat, and he he, he said that again. Uh, while 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 talking while talking to Cole, he, he said if if you don't have a good match, fuck, I'm not paying you. <laughs> like like that. Yeah. that's what he said. Like uh, the, the, that's what he said there. Uh, so I think uh, definitely if he can tell you're just dogging it, you're just being lazy. Look, yeah, like I'm not paying you for that. You you just shoddy work. Um, so different than a carpenter doing doing a bad job. Like I'm not paying you for that. So, uh, so now, um. This is where, where we're going to have a lot of fun uh, here. Uh, well, we'll do this in 1999, and then we'll get to the Beyond the Mat stuff. But uh, on April 5th, 1999, there will apparently be a major wrestling tour of Australia. 
starting on uh, July 17th, ran, run by Peter Skeptis with Roland Alexander of the Northern California All-Pro Wrestling Office booking talent with the Bushwhackers on the first tour. Christopher Daniels and Lance Diamond are being brought in for shows in late, in late May for APW, and Michael Modest, Tony Jones, Max Justice, and Boyce Lagrange are being sent to work for b- promoter Blaine DeSantis in Pennsylvania mid-May. He talks about this in another way with Colt. This is where Simon Diamond finds out Mike Modest is getting $500 a month. <laughs> and then the assistant is getting $250 a month, which Could, may have been Tony Jones at the time. Because his guys are fondly now traveling to the And this is where he says Coast. DeSantis was pissed, and so was Kepner. Yeah. <laughs> this, is, this is where they find out. And then this is fun. Interesting. He's starting to branch these guys out, create relationships and all that. Um one of the things did we the CML show did we already was was this before or after it was before all right sorry I didn't touch on that well we you know yeah I did I did, I just put the uh, results in here but didn't list any other information um but you yeah, know the we'll talk about this so Roland was very good at, at partnering with people like and working with people like and in 1995 so we're going back a little bit. Their CMLL did run a show uh, in Los Angeles at the Great Western Forum at Drew 4,446, uh, which, mind you, this is right around the time, too, that AAA does War of the Worlds in 94. So, like, uh, Lucha Libre is doing well in California. Uh, but uh, he supplied the opening match. It was La Migra 1 and La Migra 2 defeating Mexican Blanco and Super Diablo. Now, they have Super Diablo listed as Aaron O'Grady Crash Holly here, but... I don't think that's the case because Super Diablo seems like a completely different person. Yeah, because he's listing other results. Through, it's probably Mexican through the, Blanco. I yeah, through the Observer, it was like Cage Match is not a hundred percent accurate with with some of these some of these names on there, but it still. But the fact remains, like he helped out, he supplied talent for this show, basically the first match. But like that's helping, and I'm pretty sure that would be something that he would use as a selling point for a school yep. too is look where I've, I have these connections with this fed and this promotion, this promotion, and I can send people here and there and definitely helps, which obviously we've seen later with the pro wrestling Noah, uh, relationship, how that worked there too. Um, I, this is one of the biggest things that, uh, we were going to talk about on this show. So here, here it is. Are, are, are you ready? Ash? Here it is. <laughs> uh, September 29th beyond the mat. They went to a wrestling school, Roland Alexander's All-Pro Wrestling School in Hayward, California, to follow the fledgling careers of two of his best prospects, Michael Modest and Tony Jones. A funny seed intersped uh, Jones talking about his matches and his payoffs for the Hayward Gym shows. $25 if you have a good match. You don't get paid if you have a bad match. Then Alexander comes back claiming that everyone gets paid and how he's one of the best payoff men in all of independent pro wrestling. Uh, Alexander also makes it clear that uh, to be a successful wrestling promoter, you have to be a prick. Uh, Modest, who at the time was working at a funeral home uh, as a regular job and living in the room above the gym where he was a head instructor, was there talking about his skills. His self-evaluation was pretty honest. He thought he was way more uh, cut out for Japanese wrestling with the emphasis on skill and athleticism than American wrestling with its emphasis on theatrics. 
Largely as a favor for the movie project, Ross agreed to give Modest and Jones a tryout when the WWF taped television nearby Sacramento. It's noted that backstage before the match, Alexander seemed more nervous than two of his wrestlers, noting that if either gets signed by WWF, that per his contract, he receives 20% of their earnings. As the two wrestle in the opening match, various WWF personnel, none more intently or enthusiastically than Jim Cornette, who clearly believes in the ability and is singing their praises to everyone within an earshot as they are in the ring, and Ross, who seems more stoic. McMahon walked in for a quick look and was far more condescending. When Jones uh, does a bridging suplex, uh, McMahon praised the, his bridge, but was almost snide, saying that's something new for us, a wrestling move, as if that was almost something dirty. When Modest delivered a fisherman buster, a maneuver McMahon had never seen before, McMahon reacted like he just saw a green guy hurt his fellow wrestler by badly, by badly screwing up a move. When they did another move nobody has seen, similar to a uh, Masira Masawa move, Cornette's reaction to something like he'd never seen before was to put it over, while one of the wrestlers watching talked about wanting to steal the move. It was the uh, kryptonite crunch. Mm-hmm. Ross's evaluation was uh, that Modest was a solid worker and that Jones had potential and told Jones he needed to add some upper body mass and was and wear a more flattering ring costume to get in the hunt. As it turned out, the WF never called either man, either man back. As it turned out in a later movie scene, it was almost identical, although it didn't involve wrestling. It was New Jack getting a tryout in Hollywood as the casters fawned all over him and debated on whether he had leading man potential. And despite all the praise, he never got past square one, which, side note, I am surprised New Jack never got movie roles because he's a very entertaining individual. <laughs> I think if he came along 20 years later, New Jack would have – he would have gotten some of these direct-to-DVD movies yeah. that, like, Christian Cage is playing in. <laughs> yeah, like, he would have definitely got one of those things as uh, an enforcer. So before we get to the review from one of the readers on uh, Beyond the Mat, I just kind of want – you know, Yeah, I want to dissect that a little M- bit. M- um, Melter touched on most of my observations – I decided to rewatch that. I've seen Beyond the Mat like probably five, ten times, but I wanted to watch the Roland Alexander stuff this week before we did the show here. Um, when he's pitching to the students, and he's he sounds like a used car salesman because he's like, "Oh, you could have good credit, bad credit, no credit. You know, as long as you pay the five hundred dollar deposit." Um, and then he he he's claiming he's talking about nutrition. And they zoom in on the can of Coke. <laughs> and Roland talks about that in our wrestling Coke Cabana. And he he did not like that. And he goes, I don't have to be in good shape. But I can know good nutrition to be a wrestler. Like, I can know what they're looking for, what Vince is looking for, what Bischoff was looking oh, for. Oh, and I, I, I agree with him. Because, like, yeah, you could, you could have a journalist tell someone, like, oh, yeah, this is what you do. Is what you, but, like, yeah, you don't have to practice. Like, like for me, like. I, I will be the first to tell you I'm not in the best shape in the world. I don't eat the healthiest as far as I eat junk food and stuff, but I can also tell you how to eat right, or I could refer you to people to eat right. Like I like well, you're, you're vegan, but if I'm if I'm asking where can I get the best wings from, like you're like you know the I, best place. Back before I was a vegan, yeah, but like yeah. But my, my point is, but also to be able to eat right nutrition-wise doesn't mean I have to practice it, but I want you to succeed. I'm not trying to get signed as a pro wrestler. I'm trying yeah. to get signed as a ring announcer. So it's – it's I can defend him in that. Like, And then he didn't like the zoom-up shots 
showing him where first off he should have wore a longer shirt <laughs> but like the zoom up shots that that, that, that dress professional that, that made him look fat and but actually like the shots that he mentioned were like well also shots of modest and tony jones to make them look too. bigger though yeah too. to make them look big like he was walking with them so it was just like his shots um besides i and i do love uh modest wearing the canadian tuxedo but also yep. like he's got the fanny pack and he's got the the gym bag which, from what I've learned when I first broke in, was like back then, you never had a rolling bag because you like, had to be you, so many years in the business to get a rolling bag. Yeah, because it's like, well, you're not tough enough to carry your own gear bag. So everyone, like, you would never have that. And like when I first started, I had a rolling bag, but I always would carry it into venues. That's to what make I sure. do too. Yeah. That old, that little old school stuff there. Um, and. He he said that Blosty made it look like everything about him was money and nothing else. Like he didn't care about the guys and all that. He does say that he turned down Blostein, who wanted to film a booking meeting. So he thinks two of the reasons why Barry Blostein depicted him in like the carny negative way was he turned on the booking meeting. Uh he did not want him to film. He goes, Well, Vince McMahon, let me go, I don't care what Vince McMahon did. I'm a different person. I don't want you to to film my booking meeting. He also says that, you know, during this time when they were filming at the school. Him and Vic Grimes got in a legit heat where Vic Grimes actually punched Roland Alexander and then chased him in a parking lot. And and he said he never told Meltzer about this. It was just it's something that happened one night at the school. It happened. Nobody knew. But he decided he wanted to kind of turn it into an angle, and, and he was doing a press conference, right? For And side note, we'll leave beyond the map for two seconds. The press conference was about his guys being in Secrets of Pro Wrestling, which if you guys... NBC's Secrets of Pro Wrestling. If you guys don't know, there was this special. It was about a two-hour special with commercials. And it was these guys with their voices changed and their masks telling you how punches are thrown and it was the original shots. it was the original mass wrestler. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Guess yeah. <laughs> uh, who these guys are. Um, But one of the... And, and the Harley races evolved and all that. And they used a lot of local APW guys, Mike Monis, Donovan, May, and Morgan, Mac justice. And Christopher Daniels was involved too. Yeah. Right? Basically they, they all had different gear, different masks and different gimmicks basically to protect their identities. What they said it was, it was, it was at the time when in the late nineties, there was a TV series on Fox, I guess a the bunch magician, of, yeah. yeah uh, Magic's Greatest Secrets Revealed, which is a magician basically showing how a magician saws a woman in half, how they make someone disappear, like the old school stuff, and like and exposing it. So NBC tried to jump on that during the height of the Attitude Era and had a special with Wrestling's Greatest Secrets Revealed, and they showed like, oh, when they fall, this is how they this is how they properly fall. When they get blood, this is how they get blood. Uh, there was some stuff in there that. I feel like the workers were working the producers by Stunt saying, granny. yeah, like, oh, the people, anyone in the crowd that had a sign, they were supplied by the promoter. No one brings signs to the crowd. Like, what the fuck are you talking about? I brought signs. <laughs> yeah, and the, the stunt granny part, like, it's one thing, like, we've seen it before. You, you, you have a plan the, in the crowd. You, yeah. You have a plan, but like. Where are you finding a 67-year-old woman that could take bumps like that unless they're May Young or Fabulous like even back then you don't like, you're not going to no push stunt granny. But you don't push an old like that's going to create a riot back yeah. then. Like you don't <laughs> But uh yeah so no, 
you know, he, 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 he mentioned that and all that. But anyways, he's doing the press conference, right, to talk, hey, look at this big thing. These guys are in the secrets of professional wrestling. And then he had it where Big Grimes would come in and start screaming at him and this and that. They basically would turn a shoot into a work. He didn't give Blostein a heads up on this. So Blostein saw this. Like, oh, get the cameras, get the cameras, get the cameras. So, like, he got the cameras and he was able to film some of it. So then they're talking, you know, the next day when Meltzer is supposed to, or Meltzer is coming to do his interview, but he's Blossy and Roland are talking and Roland says that like Blossy was pissed because he goes, was that a work or a shoot? He goes, it was work. He goes, I told you not to work me for this. I didn't want to film anything worked. Yeah. And he goes, we didn't, this wasn't something what we were doing for this documentary. So he thinks that Blostein put him in the negative mindset for the not filming the booking meeting and then also working him with, yeah. the, with that argument with Vic Grimes. So it's possible. Um, I also want to point out too, like obviously Blostein's going to use creative licensing and like he's there's going to be certain things that he's going to cut out or like only put in there because of time constraints if it's narrative, but. You know, when I'm looking at arena results, because you could see in that clip of them backstage that, like, I think you said Robert Thompson uh, was on on the booking sheet, on the lineup at that Raw taping. Yep. So I look it up. I noticed and that. Sacramento, California, Arca Arena, September 15th, 1998. That was when Raw would be taped every other week. They do a live Raw on Monday, and then on the next night on Tuesday, they tape the next week. So Mike Modest pinned Tony Jones in the dark match. Then later on, they were doing a taping for Shotgun. You had Dan Severn defeated Robert Thompson, and Brian Christopher and Scott Taylor defeated Christopher Daniels and Suicide Kid. Because if you watch part of the Beyond the Mat segment, you can see Christopher Daniels in gear in the background. So he was obviously there. Now, all right, I can understand like not mentioning Daniels. Maybe like Robert Thompson getting a spot. Side note, but this was on a Tuesday, a taping. You look the night before. Live Raw in San Jose, there was a dark match of Donovan Morgan against Mike Modest. And then also Taka Michinoku pinning Christopher Daniels at the shotgun taping. So it was left out of Beyond the Mat. Tony that, Jones may have been a favor, but I don't think Modest was. No. You could you could definitely see that like they were they used Modest on that entire loop. Yeah. Uh and also like they made it up that Modest never really had a chance. He did he did WCW tryout a few months earlier. So it could have very well been uh, Jim Ross heard that, oh, WCW's looking at this guy. We better bring him in, too, to see if he has anything. That's not out of their own possibility. WWE still does that today with AEW. So there's a little bit more to the story. I don't think that it was purely Blostein. Like them purely getting, doing a favor to boss, yeah. Well, Roland's known at this time. You know he's known by them. Like, yeah. I mean, we talk about how scarce California is. If they need Northern California yeah. job guys, that's where they're going. There's they're not going anywhere else. Um, and uh, real quick too, I, I mentioned I said Valdinas. It was Dan Severin who like who Robert Thompson ha- had the match against. But he mentions a couple things. He says in this he doesn't want APW to become as complex as intense as WWE. He was content with being a small Northern, 
you know, you know, California regional promotion, which for him, that's smart. Like that, that, and he was, if he was making, yeah, if he was making money and he was, he was fine with that. He didn't want, because as you, as we saw with ECW around that time too, you, you got bigger, you bid, the bigger you get, the more money you have to spend. So yeah, I could see if a promoter is at a certain level where he's like, I'm comfortable making this money. I don't want to spend any more and get any bigger. Now, mind you, this is an edited documentary, but one of the funny things I find interesting is, so we're watching that, right? And they are saying that Modest was good, right? And they're saying that Tony Jones looked good. But in the documentary, Roland tells Mike Modest that, oh, the WWE said, you're ready, man. And then he told Tony Jones, you have a lot. Hey, Tony, they said you have a lot of potential. And that's not what I got out of... Maybe Cornette, but not Jim Ross. I think a lot of it was from Cornette's because, as you see, like, that's what Meltzer said, too. And, like, anyone that listens to a lot of Cornette, like, he will champion behind someone if he thinks, like, this guy's ready. Like, even today, he still defends the Bashams and and says, like, when they were in OVW, they were the best thing going. And the Bashams should have been main eventers in WWE. So, like, I could see Cornette getting behind Modest and, like, singing his praises. But again, that's in but, WWE. That's not who. That's not the person hiring you. But Roland even said, like, like, so Roland even says in Art of Wrestling about Cornette that Cornette told him he goes, "Well, Roland asks us, why isn't Mike getting a shot?" And which, if he's saying that, that means that Mike's had looks at before. So it's you know, why isn't why are why are they not signing Mike? And Cornette goes, "Because he's a wrestler. He doesn't tap dance. He doesn't twirl plates." He's a great wrestler. And and in that time period, like, it wasn't all about that. You know what I mean? Now we're starting to see a change with NXT and, and Triple H and all that. But, like, you know. I mean, that's that's definitely a long discussion for another time about certain guys of, like, how in today's WWE, they, it's why isn't Adam Cole on the main roster? Oh, because he's, he's too short. Like, that still exists today, unfortunately. But. Yeah, I think if Modest was a few inches taller, he would have been signed. I still, I still think I still don't think that it, w- it mattered at that time because, like, seeing some of his matches back then, I think he had the charisma that they could have definitely did something with him during that era. Like, would it have been a really great gimmick? Would it have been like a Beaver Cleavage type gimmick? Who knows? But I think, like, he definitely had the body. Like, he could have definitely fit in and did something at that point yeah i mean even like wcw i'm surprised i mean maybe they just were so out of touch with the west coast but like i like, mean looking at him he looks like a better like looking Lodi and lenny lane at the, yeah you know like, like well like the big question is like did he just once he got into noah did he stop actively pursuing them because the way wcw expanded in the late 90s era with bringing guys in for worldwide and saturday night and he never and came like, in. Yeah, everybody like, was there. Yeah, yeah, everyone got a look at that time. Like, did was he just Dr. content? Luther. <laughs> yeah. Like, like, yeah. But, yeah, was, did he just get to the point where he was just content with doing just, like, APW and then when he was back in the U.S., but just Noah and just not I mean, he was worrying? convinced he was ready for – he was Japan. Like, that's – Yeah. I think he was convinced of that. Uh, and he's not the only one. Like, that's – the. Kenny Omega story too, the same yeah. thing. Like there's a lot of American North American guys that their dream has always been Japan and they might have they might have had a little t- 
taste of WWE, like doing tryouts or maybe developmental and just like, yeah, this ain't for me. I'm going to Japan. Um, so a couple a, a couple things uh, to just uh, touch on beyond the mat real before we move on. Um, in the beyond the mat, he mentions that, oh, they had a record breaking crowd of 112. I get where Roland is trying to make Blostein look bad because, yes, the gym wars were a small place. 112 was record breaking, but he's not mentioning Roland drawing a thousand here and a thousand there. And he's not like, mentioning this is a school that can only yeah. sit 112. It's not like it's not like he's running a high school gym and like a really bad indie, independent fed that's only drawing 30 people. He mentions that building code violations canceled Roland's Wednesday gym war show, which couldn't have been a long time that they were. Canceled. No, I saw that somewhere else too, but like they were running on a regular basis, so I don't know like where that came from. Um, and uh, the big, the biggest thing. Oh, real quick too, when he's talking about the fast food, the, the possible prospects for any rolling his eyes, I found that funny too. <laughs> uh, but Blostein called him a carny at the end, and. Even with Jake the Snake Roberts, who at this time was n- not a good person, I'm sorry. Like in 1997, 1999, in this documentary, like the drug use and the strange relationship with his daughter, he admitted to not showing up to shows unless he got crack. <laughs> he was painted in a better light than Roland at the end, which I don't think is fair. Yeah, I don't think so either. I think it was more of the name value. People knew Jake Roberts, and like Roland could be Roland everyone could be in heel. that's a carny because I'm yeah. a carny, you're a carny, we're all carnies. Yeah, like why is Roland the carny and beyond the mat? Then his stamp was a carny. Like he's like I'm not doing it unless I'm booked. Exactly. Like, hey, like not gonna show up to hang out. What's wrong with you? Yeah. Like I like one thing. You know, we can question Roland's business tactics all day long, and the twenty percent thing is another thing that came out of beyond the mat, which. I don't know about that. Like you, you said that he said he never took it, but it was in contracts. Yeah, I saw it later on in the notes where like he admitted that like he's never he never took that money, like he never called it called on that, but it was in the contracts. It's just standard legal stuff in there. Um, but again, like we said, like Vern Gagne had that type of deal, and nobody signed it back in the seventies. No one agreed to it and sent him money. I think like one or two undercar guys did, but like. I think it was in Flair's book that Flair mentioned, like, Vern tried to get him to sign that when he moved from Minneapolis to the Carolinas. And when he got to Carolinas, I think it was Wahoo or someone, like, went to him and was like, no, you don't sign that. So, like, and Vern's hardly the only guy. A lot of a lot of promoters tried that over the years. Like I said, some I, of them I, did I have wrong, success. I think Prentice did it, a couple other guys like yeah, that. Yeah, some of them did have success on that. And like we were talking earlier, I want to say, like, either – Pritchard or Ross mentioned on a podcast once where uh, they've had talent that they've signed come to them and say, oh, yeah, I owe my trainer this much. And WWE's like, no, you don't. So, like, they were – even WWE will shoot him down. It's like, you don't have to do that. So, oh. like, there there was a respect thing. I've known guys have gotten signed that will take care of their trainer, whether it be, like, putting a good word from certain places or, like – at the very least, taking him out to a steak dinner and like, yeah, like taking care of him or like buying them something really, really nice. So, like, uh, there, there's a sort of respect there, but to manually be like, you owe me 20% of your contract, which at that point during the attitude era could have been $300,000 a year. Like, no, yeah, fuck you. Um, 
real quick to wrap up beyond the mat uh review from the reader this november 8 1999 um i think everyone came off positively except for roland alexander i know him personally i had a try at his camp five years ago the speech he gave the two recruits in his office was word for word the same one he gave me don't get me wrong he's a very nice man and he's very sincere and is trying to get his boys jobs in the big two but he's also very stubborn you can't talk him on anything and that's greg davidson from van Noyes, california uh mark Fast forward to March 24, 2000. Uh, Roland Alexander, the promoter of All Pro Wrestling, which is also featured in the movie, claimed that they were approached about it in 1995 or 1996 and asked about getting paid for doing it. Blosting told him, and and that was the thing that came out of our wrestling too, nobody was paid. Yeah. Uh, Blosting told him that it wasn't expected to make money and would probably air on public broadcasting and didn't even expect it to make it a video. Obviously, we know it goes into theaters. It becomes a cult film. I think it's... Is it the wrestling documentary, you think? like, I think I mean, so. But, wrestling I mean, with Shadows is wrestling, kind of up there, too. Yes, yeah. But Wrestling with Shadows is more of... It's just hard. But not only that, like, you have to be a wrestling fan to like get into Wrestling with Shadows to know that, I think, in my opinion. Beyond the mat, you could sit down a non-wrestling fan and show them that, and they can understand what's going on. Yeah. So uh, I think, like, for a novice documentary, yeah. But I don't... It's kind of weird because, like, like, it's it's called Hollywood Hollywood bookkeeping, where uh, Hollywood can make a movie, like a Hollywood blockbuster, could appear to not make money with how record keeping and accounting works. Where there's there's some movies I think Kevin Smith said like uh, the first Clerks. Still to this day, they, the movie studio claims they've never made money off of it because Kevin Smith had a deal of getting so much of the profits. And so creative Hollywood bookkeeping will tell you like, oh, no, your movie didn't make money when it made hundreds of million do- millions of dollars because creative bookkeeping, they've moved around money and and accounted, accounted it differently. So when I read that, I could see – Blostein saying that because maybe the film studio didn't make money off of it. Um, but but again, they're in the movie. They should have got something for it. He definitely – Roland definitely made money off of it through the publicity, well, though. And he says that he had a really good year after it came out, which yeah. led to another good year and another good year and another good yeah. year. He, he says he is thankful for it. But uh, he also just didn't like the way he was depicted. Like, is he? Is he? Does he even do better years if he's depicted in better? Like I say, he was predicted as a huge car salesman and only wanted money. And like for him to say, "Oh, here's an accountant." Like the guy was in the wrestling business. The guy watched The Rock as a child. Yeah, I mean, babysat The Rock. Like he understood, you know. And like. Ada Johnson came out and said, like, oh, yeah, I remember Roland. Like, she said that to Meltzer, you know, when 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 Roland passed. Like, so. I mean, this guy wasn't. No, was he Terry Funk? Was he, you know, De- even Dennis? Day- no, but. But he 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 was a part of wrestling. But. So uh, uh, one quick note to that I forgot from uh, our wrestling. It's not regarding beyond the map, but. When they talk about the AOL thing, he says he ran his business like AOL, like a volunteer incentive basis. And 
I kind of found that funny because I feel like that didn't last long at AOL <laughs> once they be like, all right, uh, yeah, you got to pay me some money. So <laughs> um, for for the experience, yeah. that's yeah. Uh, now uh, we're going to 2001, February 19, 2001. They're doing interpromotional feud in Ultimate Pro Wrestling. Rick Bassman, very similar story to Roland Alexander, a little bit more uh, colorful though, uh, a little more longer history, it's like a little bit more carny. Yeah, uh, but uh, using the All Pro Wrestling guys doing the natural Northern versus Southern California angle. Team APW of Michael Modest and Tony Jones and Donovan Morgan, managed by Roland Alexander, the promoter and trainer and Beyond the Mat, beat Team UPW, which was Mike Knox, Frank Kazarian, and Billy D in a match uh, where the man who scored the pin. Jones would get the Southern California belt. This match, uh, this moves the match to a headline position on the February 21st UPW show in Santa Ana, where the UPW headline team of Christopher Daniels and Mike Henderson and Tom Howard, the predator. Um, um, yeah. So at this time, this is California starting to kind of become a little bit known. Um, not like they would be a little bit years later, but, you're aware of UPW, and you're now aware of APW because of Beyond the Mat. Yeah, and you have the two top promotions in California. The one, the top, the biggest one in the north, the biggest one in the south. Now doing some interpromotional stuff. And UPW, and I mean, Knox, Kazarian, Samoa Joe, John Cena, and there's others too um, that came out of there too. So uh, Kendrick, I want to say, came out of there too. I could be wrong. No, Kendrick was a. Uh, Spanky is uh, Shawn Michaels. Oh no, no, I'm but he's worked. He worked well, there. Yeah, no, no, he worked there. That's right. He was working. It was one of the first places he went to. Um, yeah, why? Yeah, I knew that was Shawn Michaels. What was that on there? Uh, um, February twenty six, two thousand one. The UPW APW feud continued. Uh, this time at APW's first show of the year at February seventeenth in Vallejo, California, as a van carrying. Uh, Big Schwag, Rick Bassman, Looney Lane, Samoa Joe, Billy D, Frank Kazarian, and Prototype John Cena showed up and issued a challenge. Lane and Prototype apparently connected with the crowd immediately. APW promoter Roland Alexander challenged them to a match uh, against three APW prelim guys, and if they didn't win, they would never be allowed to come back. So Prototype and D and Kazarian beat the Snot Brothers and Sean Patrick O'Doul. Uh, match went a little too long, but good heat. Well, report was we got that the UPW guys didn't look impressive in their match, but they had enough charisma and presence on the mic to make a compelling feud. After the match, Alexander then brought out Mike Modest and Donovan Morgan and Vinny Massaro and Christopher Daniels, challenged them to a further date. But then Daniels turned on Alexander and said his loyalties are with Southern California uh, and UPW. Alexander then picked Robert Thompson as his replacement. Bassman then put a sleeper hold on an APW ref, which came off real hokey, using an old-school pro wrestling move in the middle of a work shoot angle. Daniels' turn uh, was said to be good. Main event was Morgan versus Daniels, ending with UPW guys interfering and APW guys making the save. Now, just and the fact of Cena and Kazarian on a team is quite interesting. And Cena... Working for Roland, <laughs> like uh, yeah, it, and 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 you didn't know that until we did, we did the research, you know. And and Roll and Meltzer actually saying like they Cena wasn't that impressive in the ring, but had charisma. So that's kind of interesting. Uh, it's definitely precursor. Yeah. Um. So one of the things I find by this though is is 
it's almost a tale of two cities. And when I mean literally, but also figuratively, Roland's producing great workers. Roland's producing catches, catch can guys, guys that can go to Japan and work puro, guys that are solid workers, make other guys look great in the ring. Bassman's producing WWE style guys where it's more body about guys. presentation, body, jibber jabbering with the fans. Not so much how well can you do that to pay. Like Bassman's main concern is how many guys can I sell to the WWE as opposed to Roland, who is how much money can I bring into my school to keep it afloat? Yeah. Uh, so it's it's very interesting to see the two different styles. And that's yeah. kind of why this worked, actually, because it was two different, you know, uh, ways of doing things. Especially during the early 2000s here where the internet's starting to take hold, but you still didn't have streaming media. So it's more of fans just knowing and hearing about these fans, like Southern California fans hearing about APW and, and Northern California hearing about UPW, just knowing that like a lot of matches, like dream matches, like observer dream matches happening here. Yeah. Uh, in March 5th, 2001, the latest in the APW, uh, UPW Food in California, is they did a show on February 21st in Van Nuys, California, where the team of UPW of Christopher Daniels and Mikey Henderson and Tom Howard uh, beat Team APW of Michael Modest, Donovan Morgan, and Tony Jones. This resulted in uh, UPW promoter Rick Bassman getting two minutes with APW promoter Rick Roland Alexander. Bassman had Alexander in a sleeper when Henderson turned on Bassman and took a payoff in the ring from Alexander. Next show was March 14th with Jones versus Staz uh, for the uh, Southern California title. Morgan and Modest versus the Urban Outlaws. A loser leaves town match for the UPW title with Daniels versus Samoa Joe. Uh, and some bouts uh, build as part of a UPW versus ECW feud with Va- Rob Van Dam versus uh, Mikey Henderson. CW Anderson versus Prototype. <laughs> Another match I want to see. Uh, yes. R- Roadkill versus Sakota. And Nova versus Frankie Kazarian versus Hardcore Kid Aaron Aguilera. Uh, something is Jesus. No, Nova and Frankie Kazarian. Uh, Nova, I'm sorry, yeah, Nova and Frankie Kazarian versus Hardcore Kid, who's Aaron Aguilera, no, Jesus. and Adam Pierce. That's another guy. Uh, although this hasn't been announced yet, there's a lot of talk that WWF is going to give them Jericho. For one cent to entity, and I know they did get WWF guys. Yeah, not sure if Jericho. I'm not sure. I didn't really find anything else. I think or Edge and Christian. I remember one of those teams. No, they got Edge and Christian because I think that's actually on the network. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but and I I think the show actually it says Van Nuys. Melcher said Van Nuys. I think it was Santa Ana because that's why seen on Cage Match. So. There's like an hour difference between those two cities, so it's not like one next to the other. The ECW thing's interesting because they're literally... ECW's done at this point. They just went out of business. So, so it's, it's interesting that Bassman is already trying to take advantage of the name. And he's the like, first ECW reunion show? Yes. <laughs> like, there you go. But ECW, you learn on this show. And ECW didn't even file for bankruptcy yet by March 5th. So he's... Yeah. You think like when he found out Little Rock was the last show, he's just calling guys. Hey, uh, I got an I got an idea. <laughs> CW, I got this guy John Cena, the prototype. Which, if anyone has footage of CW Anderson versus a uh, 2001 John Cena, please send our. Why is this on IWTV? <laughs> like, we, we we need to see this. Um, 
Uh, June 18th, 2001, uh, Masawa held another uh, tryout on June 4th uh, in Hayward, California with the All-Pro Wrestling Gym for Michael Modest, Donovan Morgan, Christopher Daniels, Max Justice, Mark Smith, Vinny Massaro, uh, France, Vic Capri, Kevin Quinn, and Tony Jones. Modest, Morgan, and Smith are believed to be uh, the best shot at going in the future. Mark Smith, also known as Bison Smith, um, which it's funny too, Bison Smith, Vic Grimes, Spike Dudley, and Mike Modest all lived in the apartments in the gym yeah. too. Um, but this is the relation, the beginning of the relationship with Noah. You know, he, Roland talks a little bit about his meeting with Masawa and all that. And he was really big on pushing this because I think also it helped his school out too by having that connection. Do you think he finally figured it out in 2001 where, you know, we're observing it in his, his feud with Bassman where, okay, I'm not going to be the school that produces WWF and WCW. Well, at this point, WWF guys. Yeah. I'm not going to be that school anymore, especially with there being less jobs in America at this time. Yeah. TNA is not a thing. Ring of Honor is not a thing. Do you think he's like, okay, this is where I'm going to get people to think they have a shot to get jobs. Japan. If I can show like, Hey, you come here, you can get a shot in Japan. That's going to be my meal ticket. Cause think about it. 2001 Rick Bassman is promising people to go work. For Vince. Yeah. You know, uh, that's his whole business model. I, I, I can get you in there. Um, you know, we're, we're, I mean, at this time, like oh, Memphis really isn't a thing. I mean, but there's still other schools like that. He, well, I mean, HWA, OVW. Yeah. Both of those places. Hey, we can give you a shot. Memphis. Me- yeah. I think, yeah, Memphis. Yeah. So, you have all well, those power, pro, power Pro power. still existed. Yeah. Okay. So, but like, but all of them had WWE deals. Yeah. OVW, Heartland. Like, if they didn't have deals, like, they could easily get guys up there. UPW obviously did at that time, too. So, no, I could see where you're going with that, where Roland needed a connection because all these other schools are popping up. Yeah. Like, if you're local from California, from Northern California, you don't, like, you're probably going to pick his school just because you don't want to relocate and travel. But if you're, a guy that has a body that is serious about this and willing to relocate. Like, yeah, there's competition for those type of guys. And so you need a hook and being like, Hey, I got connections with Japanese feds. Definitely an advantage. And look at, and think about Masawa at this time too. So he's, he's trying to grow Noah. Right. And a lot of guys were loyal to their Japanese places they they went to other than i think like vader who flirted with other ones but like a lot of americans worked for the same place it was pretty much like that with japan with the japanese wrestling that's japanese culture i'm a new japan guy i'm an mfw or fmw guy uh you know i'm that this guy that guy whatever big japan started popping up this time like so i think he knew that he had to almost get new american workers and also you gotta think about it's 2001 yeah, there's all these guys out here now because e- ECW and WCW are, are are no longer a business. But now, how many of these guys are, you know, they got buyouts or they're like, I'm not going to Japan or if I do, I, I need to get this much. And so he's finding a new crop of Americans that he can put on, you know, like, hey, look at these guys. But the, it's not costing him. No, and that's that's the whole thing of why Processing Noah was created, anyways. Masawa had a issue with all japan after baba died and broke away and took 
I believe believe every local Japanese talent except for two and created Noah. But that time, yeah, the the Americans. If you're an American worker and you're going over for all Japan for tours, you're still getting paid well. You weren't gonna you're rock just the boat go with to it. Noah. Like yeah, so like yeah, and Misawa. Like there was a whole thing of during that time with New Japan as well. Like they're looking for new blood. They're looking for new talent. They're also looking for new talent in America too to bring in the next hot thing to build the new generation of wrestling in Japan. So yeah, and and like Noah. Masawa had nowhere else to go. He wasn't going to WWE being like, hey, let's work out a deal here. Like, as you said, Ring of Honor didn't exist at that time. TNA didn't exist. You needed something. Like, might as that's your best option as a partner with the school. And, uh, yeah, so now we're uh, uh, into uh, July 9, 2001, where the list of former wrestling greats from the 70s that will appear at Roland Alexander's late October King of the Indies tournament is going to surprise a lot of people. Means we've heard is Dick the Destroyer buyer. Yep, uh, from uh, Ash and I's uh, home area in Buffalo. Uh, Red, Best, Red Bastine, Pepper Gomez, Nick Bockwinkle, and Bobby Heenan, along with former Barrier area stars. So he's definitely going for bigger names now yeah. than, you know, that were still regional to the northern, you know, well, again, like Keenan's available area. now because he's not working WCW. One thing that uh, we didn't mention that uh, in December 2000, he ran the first King of Indies tournament, which is just like a local tournament uh, in in California with uh, Christopher Daniels going over Donovan Morgan. And I believe uh, it was said later on in the notes that there was some controversy over that, that uh, – Everyone thought that he should have Roland should have put over Donovan Morgan, put over his own guy in the tournament. Um, but obviously, that was the first tournament. It was in Galt, California, in December thirtieth. So this year, we're talking about two thousand one. He wants to run another one. He's going to run two nights, so a sixteen-man uh, tournament, and also do a Legends reunion type show. Now, again, when you look at that first one, Christopher Daniels, Boyce LaGrange, Scoot Andrews, Vinny Massaro, Robert Thompson, Mike Modest, Vic Capri, Donovan Morgan. And Scoot the- was a big deal because Scoot was coming from the East Coast. So, like, started to see, like, oh, wow, bringing guys from the East Coast to the West Coast? Yeah. Like, but, like, he's, he's really the only he's the only guy here. He's the only East Coast guy, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, like, all the rest were, like, his own guys, with the exception of Daniels. But Daniels is regular on the shows anyways. So as we're looking at 2001, he decides to go for broke and do a huge tournament, 16-man, two, two nights, and he's bringing in name talent, or name talent yeah. for the Indies. Which, which uh, we'll, we'll break down the, all the tournament. Uh, we're going to get to it very shortly as far as who was in it. And, you know, I have some thoughts on, on what it relates to as far as wrestling today. Uh, and all that, but uh, yeah. Um, so in uh, July, uh, I'm sorry, uh, September 17, 2001. Noah talked last week with uh, all pro wrestling promoter Roland Alexander about sending uh, Omari and Morishima to the King of the Indies in Vallejo, California, on October 27th and October 28th. While Alexander was also interested in Marafuji, uh, because of the timing aspect of getting all the paperwork done, it may not get done. Um. And then October 29th, uh, 2001, 
this comes out here. Mike Monis is out of the King Andy's tournament, October 27th, October 20th in Vallejo, that he was originally booked to be a major part of. My impression is that with his Japan deal going so well, he doesn't want to risk himself over a relatively small as compared to what he earns in Japan payoff. He got a slight concussion in his last APW match with Donovan Morgan before the tour, and they went home early because he was nauseous, and he and promoter Roland Alexander had words. Although it's not a matter of heat and the tour in contact, the injury may have been a wake-up. He's just felt that he was so banged up by the Noah style that his body needed a rest, and while he was booked to do four matches in two days. They wanted the fans would be expecting high-quality matches out of him, and his body may not be up for that, and he has to look at the business decision as he's only making $225 working APW shows, which is good for the indies, but he wouldn't be able to perform in the level Alexander expects from him do in the tournament doing classic hard style matches. Tony Jones will replace him. The old timers confirmed are Nick Bockwinkle, Dick Byer, who was hospitalized this past week, but still planning on coming in. Uh, Dan Moonigan, Fister, uh, Fritz Goraring, uh, Pepper Gomez, Paul Diamond, Raspet, Red Bass Jean, and possibly Kinji Shabia. But that kind of goes, you know, uh, you don't see uh, Bobby Heenan on that list anymore. Um, and just, Remember about uh, the blow up with Roland about the concussion because that's going to come in. Yeah. That specific thing's going to come in a little bit later. All right, so we'll. I'm going to go over the tournament bracket and then we'll go into the, what the observer said. So tournament tournament bracket here in the first round you had uh, Donovan Morgan against Scoot at Andrews, Bison Smith against Tony Jones, Douglas Williams against Adam Pierce, American Dragon Brian Danielson against Spanky, Christopher Daniels versus Super Dragon. Uh, AJ Styles versus Jardy France, uh, Low Key versus Vinny Massaro, and then Kazarian versus Samoa Joe. Uh, Morgan beat Andrews, Smith beat Jones, Williams beat Pierce, Danielson beat Spanky, Daniels uh, beat Dragon, Styles beat France, Low Key beat Massaro, Joe beat Kaz- uh, Kazarian. Uh, now in the second round, um, Morgan beat Smith, Danielson beat Williams, Daniels beat AJ. Low-key beat Joe. And in the semis, uh, Morgan beat Danielson, low-key beat Daniels, and then Danielson beat low-key to be the king of the Indies in 2001. What a lineup. And what an innovative lineup to where these guys are now. Like, I mean, let's just go down a list. I mean, Donovan Morgan... I think well-respected didn't do much past Noah and all that, you know, like I said, I think in ring him out a little bit, but a name people know Scoot Andrews, another guy that probably should have got more opportunities, but he's one of those first indie guys Well known, yeah. you, that, you know, uh, Bison Smith was a guy that honestly, if he didn't pass away, he probably would have had a contract with a big company. He was really in, in the rise. Like, yeah. um, he was doing like IW Puerto Rico and Noah and all that. Uh, Tony Jones, not much happens for Tony Jones. Uh, <laughs> Doug Williams, I mean, probably one of the best wrestlers in the world at one point. Uh, obviously, a lot of time and impact, uh, as, uh, as well as Ring of Honor. Adam Pierce, well-traveled and now WWE producer, and he's an on-air authority figure. Yeah. Uh, Brian Danielson, Daniel Bryan, one of the top wrestlers in the world. Spanky, Brian Kendrick. I mean, he's on, you know, I think he's still part of like 205 Live, but I mean, still to this day, work of a WWE. Story career. Uh, Christopher Daniels. I mean, he's the the, the uh, ta- head of talent for AEW. 
Super Dragon, you don't hear much about him, but I feel like we're eventually going to get a Super Dragon comeback. Uh, AJ Styles, one of the top guys in WWE, one of the best wrestlers in the world. I don't know much about Jardy France. Low-key, still out there, currently working for MLW, still a guy that probably would have even had more if, you know, if he didn't, you know, there's a lot of issues with him in the locker room and stuff. Vinny Massaro, well-respected guy. You still see him pop up, but uh, Kazarian, AEW, and then Samoa Joe, WWE announced team. But obviously, story career in Ring of Honor and TNA and Noah. Wow. That was 2001. Yeah. Roland really had an eye for talent. I mean, obviously, he's like, oh, all right, those kids from Shawn Michaels schools. You know, Super Dragon kind of comes out of nowhere here. I think Rev Pro starting up in a, but it's like, oh yeah, let's oh these guys in California. But I'm one of the founders of PWG. Yeah, get me the get me the New York, New Jersey guys. I'm actually honestly surprised Homicide wasn't part of this. To be honest, yeah, 2001 at that time. Um, but and, it, it can only fly so many guys right now. And with this tournament, uh, it was noted that uh, the videotape of this made it to Gabe Spolsky and and Rob Feinstein, and they credit this show with them going all in on creating Rig of Honor. Because so, they, they didn't, they were kind of, from what I've read, they were kind of at a crossroads. They needed of, like, what type of wrestling is still going to go, still going to work. I guess Paul Heyman discouraged Gabe from doing anything. And then Gabe and Rob seen this and realized, like, there could be a market where... Even if they lose money on the attendance at the shows, they could make it up in selling the VHS tapes of these. This King of the Indies, I think, led to a lot of things. I think if... They could change the business. Yes. And I think if King of the Indies doesn't happen, there is no pro wrestling gorilla. Not at all. Because that for that event to happen, then California starts getting better and better and better. I don't think there's no X Division. No, no there's no X Division. Because X Division, like stuff like this, stuff like this helped. Like there'd be no Ring of Honor without this. No Ring of without Honor. Without Ring of Honor, I don't think the X Division would have blown up like it did. Without Ring of Honor, you don't get the explosion of guys like the Bucks and stuff like that. As, and then there's no all all in or all out, and then there's no AEW. <laughs> yeah, like think just think about that. Like that's where people just think he's the fat carny, and you know from. From uh, beyond the map, but he's, he's so much more. And at this like, time, this too, so innovative. And at this time, too, like he was going off of videotapes and to see, like, I mean, like, uh, he said, like, Adam Pierce sent him a videotape. Like, all these guys were sending him vi- videos and promos to get on these shows. And from what I read, too, like, uh, it's this was a Friday, Saturday show. He had all this talent get there on Thursday and work out in the ring on Thursday. And he and Roland watched them work out, and that's how he decided who was moving on in the tournament. He because there, again, no YouTube, no internet. There's really no way of him deciding who's going to work best. He just he made the determination at that point. Um, and just a you know, you actually found us some numbers, Ash. You always do so much great research on here, but just some early numbers that. Uh, uh, per this is per from Roland. It was thirteen thousand in expenses. Only, revenue was three thousand. First night draw was one twenty five. Second night draw was three hundred. So obviously he lost some money. Lost a lot of money, like ten grand. 
But and that's why he never really did it again. To later, uh, later on after his death, they did the APW did it. But that's but that's that's kind of the heartbreaking thing because you look at like you you look at these events we've been reading here where he's drawing twelve hundred in the middle of nowhere, and then he's putting bringing in literally some of the best, and look, these guys became some of the best talents in the world. So like you would think, like was he running? He wasn't running a ticket selling fed because all of his locals were from Haywood. You think like he would if you do a thousand Haywood with ticket sellers, that's one thing. But like he's running, yeah, he's running all these weird and towns. Still, so and you drawing. have legends there. Yeah, that's what was shocking. But it just I think it just goes to show you by late two thousand one how much the business collapsed from out, a yeah. year ago yeah. from like two thousands when. You had WCW and ECW, where WCW was still drawing well for for their arena shows. ECW's largest drawing year was 2000, the year that they racked up so much debt. So, like, wrestling was still drawing up until early 2001. So, it's it's just, again, like I said, it was heartbreaking that a card like this just, just tanked. Um, so... But at least the people in the business appreciated for yeah. what it was. It, That's the main thing. And I don't think it gets enough love. Like you hear Super 8s talked about, oh, yeah, the ECW Super 8. That's kind of how you discover guys and, you know, King of the Death match and, and all these tournaments. But I don't think people talk about King of Indies enough for, yeah, it was only one time in 2001. But, or two in 2000, 2001. Oh, yeah. I keep. I mean, there was twice, but like. Well, the time it was actual super indie guys. It yes. wasn't. Yeah, it was 2001. People yeah. don't talk about it being time. like such a historic tournament. Now, that's something. That it might have been would the be first. Great on IWTV. Oh, definitely. If IWTV can get a hold of that. I don't even know. Like, going through this, like, I don't even know who owns all these tapes. Because Roland obviously taped all of these events. Like, even even if it's a hard cam only, like this footage has to be out there somewhere. He's posting it online. Like someone has to have it. But uh, yeah, this might have been the first super indie tournament with just bringing guys in from all over the country. Yeah, like, like you said, now like King of Death Match, like ECWA. So, yeah. like, well, there was still the the ECWA was still doing their the super eight. Well, they were bringing in one or two guys, but like not to this extent. No, this was the, he, he. I mean, he lost money, but this was a big venture for him. Uh, and and also, I uh, want to point out that after every match, as Meltzer said, after every match, the participants shook hands and hugged. So, sort of a code of honor. honor. Yeah. Um, Roland Alexander, the villa. Now this is actually like from the recap and everything in the observer Roland Alexander, the vilified small time promoter and wrestling school owner in the beyond the mat movie brought in 16 independent wrestlers of all sizes and styles for a two day tournament on October 26th and October 27th in Vallejo, California (coughs) to showcase the art of wrestling pro wrestling while inviting many luminaries from the past to attend. The results were both good, both happy, and sad. From a business standpoint, running two straight nights these days in the same building was a risk, and doing so without mainstream names is even more difficult. The show drew about 275 the first night and 375 the second night. APW has often drawn 500 fans in the same building for its monthly shows with far less publicity, less local publicity. The flip side, as mentioned by several wrestlers, is that it was probably the best uh, possible attendance of 375 fans to do this style of wrestling for. It was largely a combination of several Japanese styles of in-ring work. The show had very little in the way of baby faces and heels, no run-ins, managers, valets, a little brawling, uh, and all clean finishes, most via submission. 
Most matches also ended up with the participants hugging while the fans were cheering the performance. The match for uh, both nights was tremendous with at least uh, four legitimate four-star matches topped off with American Dragon vs. Spanky, four and a half, and Dragon vs. Doug Williams, uh, which was four and a quarter, which were both uh, well above that level. Also, Jerry Francis, AJ Styles, Styles vs. Daniels were at the level, and the championship match, Loki vs. Joe, Loki vs. Daniel, and uh, uh, Daniels vs. Joe, and Frankie vs. Uh, yeah, Frankie Kazarian, Joe vs. Kazarian were pretty cool, were pretty close. Um, all eight matches in the first night were very, uh, were not, were, I'm sorry, were good, most very good in the seven uh, tournament matches. The second night, five would have been at least three and a half stars. The crowd responded largely as a Japanese crowd would, which enabled the style to get over. There were no boring chants during long periods of mat work, and the crowd was heavily into submissions that wouldn't be understood by a mainstream audience. Uh, most of the fans, similar with Japanese submissions, reacted well to the UFC spots and positions employed uh, that would go over the head of the casual fan. Fans of retired wrestlers uh, brought in like Nick Bockwinkle and Kenji Shibuya and Pepper Gomez and Fritz Van Goring, Red Bastion and Dick the Destroyer by her, along with roller derby legend Ann Cavello. Uh, they're promoting the San Francisco premiere uh, of movie about her life gave several matches and standing ovations who was a longtime friend of Ray Stevens and Pat Patterson. Oh yeah. Um, and while those uh, that were uh, talked about it as being the best show they've ever seen, the numbers will, who will pay to see it far too small for it to be anything other than a big money loser. Sometimes Melcher is hard to read. <laughs> like when he's, he, uh, he trails on a yeah, lot. Alexander is able to fund those losses through a very successful local wrestling school. But when presenting a product that would be very a close representation of what a huge number of fans, particularly longtime fans, say they want wrestling to be like, uh, that was mentioned last week, often that's the kind of product they'll actually support. The attendance isn't a reflection of the style as much as a reflection on a few fans today will attend anything other that isn't WWF. And I think that's the problem that independents had for a long time till recently, to the last five, six years. And when 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 WWE's down, the wrestling in general is down. Yeah. Yeah. Like, obviously, we've seen the ad two started picking up in 96, 97, 98, and Roland's business went up, and now it's down, and it's kind of down. Um, I mean, but, like, looking at that, like, that, that what I described in 2001 was wrestling starting in late 2000s to today. Like, that's how wrestling shows are, pretty much. <laughs> yeah. Wrestling show. Now, uh, it's mentioned later on in the notes, but I'll just mention it here, too, that uh, I guess Danielson... Modest Cl- or uh, Roland claimed that Danielson wasn't supposed to go to the finals and win. Danielson was supposed to l- lose earlier on in the show, earlier on in the tournament, and Donovan Morgan was supposed to go on to win it. But after Danielson, uh, after the first round, Danielson beating Spanky, uh, the word was Nick Bockwinkle got up from his seat, went in the back, and told Roland that Danielson needs to win the tournament, which. I that's come from a few people, uh, but it was also uh, there's also different opinion from some people saying uh, trying to blame Roland for bl- like trying to punish Morgan and just saying that that wasn't his decision. It was Bachwinkle. But either way, like if if Bachwinkle was watching and taking a look at that, like that's very impressive. That is good, but why would Roland? I mean, I, I understand and respect for Nick Bockwinkle, but like Nick Bockwinkle's there is a a meet and greet. Like, yeah, no, this is how I booked it. A guy that's so strong about how he, no, this is my. It's weird that he would just he would change it. Yeah. yeah. 
Um, and also, uh, like I go back and forth with Alvarez just because with Alvarez's notes because Alvarez worked the opening match at the show. Oh yeah, is he? You could kind of take the Alvarez because that was a lot. <laughs> no, I know. Uh, <laughs> yeah, there was an eight. Well, I'm not gonna read everything. <laughs> yeah, no, no Alvarez released an issue of Figure Four Weekly, like an entire issue of just that, and it's like uh, 15 pages. So it bas- it just breaks down like him getting on the plane, him getting off the plane, him hanging out with Mel- Meltzer that weekend, like going to a gas station. So like there's a lot there. But like I – so I'm not going to read everything obviously. But like he just went through a lot of notes and a lot of things that was going on there about – like I said, like them having to work in the ring the day before and rolling going through everything. Uh, and just I think he mentioned uh, – he gave Daniels Christopher Daniels and AJ Styles four stars, which is what you expect from them. Yeah, I mean, and there's so many matches that that were on that show that would those same guys would work each other years later, um, and like kind of revolutionize how wrestling was. Uh, so uh, coming out of that was the modest falling out, November 12, two thousand one. Lots of trouble brewing in APW and its former top stars, Monis uh, and Donovan Morgan. Promoter Roley Alexander changed the booking several times over the last week for King of the Indies. At this point, Monis isn't going to be working for the company anymore as the two had problems at a show the month before, and Monis is wanting to rest up between Japan tours. Uh, at different times, Morgan, Loki, and American Dragon were apparently were going to win. The real controversy is war got out Morgan, uh, who was Alexander's head... Uh, uh, camp instructor found out that Dragon was uh, had been offered uh, was offered his job and worked Dragon out, being Brian Daniels. Yep, yeah, yeah, not Super Dragon. Uh, got around the show, which left Modest and Morgan, who had been the cornerstones of the company, feeling betrayed. Alexander's feelings are that the training school, which is financially carries the operation, had suffered with Morgan's commitments in Japan, and they need a full time instructor. Even if Morgan stays involved with the kind of instructor. Uh, emeritus type of when he's in town there was also business disagreements as both modest and morgan felt since alexander was spending nineteen thousand dollars which is a tremendous indie budget that they should have put over the local guy morgan since wrestling 101 booking would be as if such a thing matters you are working only before a few hundred fans who are there only to see work great alexander was sensitive to the internet saying uh uh that there were that since they were running a tournament they were getting uh already getting ripped beforehand about putting their own guy over, so kind of booked to prove it wrong. And after watching the wrestlers work out uh, when they got to town, like you brought up, uh, he was most impressed with Dragon, Loki, and Doug Williams. Overall, appears the company dropped $10,000 to determine it was a major disappointment as how hard it is to get people to attend live shows, even with lots of advertising and the best indie talent available, which unfortunately means zilch when it comes to selling wrestling tickets to the masses. Alexander changed the booking regarding Morgan uh, going to the finals and not losing low-key because he was disappointed in Morgan's first match with Scoot Andrews and because Dragon stole the show the first night with Spanky. Uh, as it turned out, uh, but there's more uh, to it since Dragon had mentioned to Morgan that he'd been offered the head instructor job to the school. This week, they had a meeting with Alexander, Modest, and Morgan to try to work things out, and that didn't go as smoothly as, th- uh, as far as things being resolved. Alexander is also feeling the economic pinch uh, because of losses during live shows and the wrestling school business being down this year. So there are very few to go away or restructure next year, considering two shows in a weekend every three months is a way to cut losses. So there's a lot going on here. He basically, yeah, modest is uh, 
basically only working part time at this point. He pulled himself from the show because of a concussion and uh, what wasn't at the school a lot. So I guess see Roland needed the change. Like I can understand that from his point. Well, you would think Morgan but would be the guy. You would think that's obviously an issue here, but like I, I don't think Roland came upon this good. Like that's a very carny move of going, like having someone under your employee and going behind their back to offer your job to someone else. And I don't blame Danielson. If Danielson was the one that stooged him out of that, I don't blame Danielson. If Danielson went to Modest, like, hey, I was just asked to take over to take your job, I don't blame him for that. Like, you're one of the boys. You're going to look out for him. But I can definitely understand Roland being like, I need a full-time trainer. And Danielson does. He doesn't take it right away, but Danielson does take that job and holds it for a few years. Uh, stemming from the King of the Indies, uh, it turns out there's a lot of frustration coming out of APW, and the promotion has been ripped apart with Michael Modest and Donovan Morgan planning up opening a rival school in Fremont with Rick Thompson, the original APW coach, and likely several APW wrestlers will switch when it opens in January. Uh, APW promoter Roland Alexander is looking to sell the company, publicly claiming health problems. Uh, perhaps another reason is the wrestling school business, which was booming last year, partially because wrestling was so over with teenagers and, and uh, partially because of the publicity from beyond the mat has slowed down. The King of the Indies weekend ended up losing the company, which uh, he owns in a whole more than 10 grand. In addition, there were problems stemming from the philosophical split when Morgan didn't win for reasons we noted a few weeks ago. At first, Alexander decided that Loki should win, but then Christopher Daniels told him that he thought Morgan should win because he was a local guy and he was scheduled to win. And after the first night, Alexander uh, told Morgan that he was changing the finish and American Dragon would win, who claiming Nick Bockwinkel, as you brought, suggested it. Um, Morgan officially quit as the head trainer on November 5th in a meeting uh, with Alexander and uh, Jason Dedrick uh, after he got word that Alexander had talked with both Spanky and American Dragon about his job. So Spanky also was offered at the King Andy's weekend. Uh, Alexander felt that the training program was going down since Morgan was in Japan. And, uh, but Morgan was mad about how he found out about being replaced, that the people were being interviewed for his job without the issue being addressed to him. All right. So there, that's exactly what I meant. Kind of, yep. kind of shitty. Yep. Alexander said he would like to build the promotion around flying in top indie guys a few times a year, but that defeats the original purpose of the promotion, which was to get students work in front of crowds. From an aesthetic point of view, the King of Indie show is a product with a concentration on hard work, scientific matches, incorporating believable uh, style of pro wrestling, mixing old style and long matches with clean finishes and the modern shoot style is as a product something Alexander has always wanted to promote to the point that he was moved in the ring when it was over. Uh, those who were at the show loved the product. Product, but there was no way right now to use the talent necessary to make that work since the number of available people who can work at that level isn't exactly plentiful and not uh, lose considerable money every time you promote. Um, Roland Alexander issued a press release last week concerning the future APW. He said King of the Indies was a huge success despite the fact that they lost around ten grand on the show. He said most shows lose about 2500 to 3500 but the APW school success and helped cover the losses. He said King of the Indies was the closest we've had to promoting a product or even the ever that I wanted to be associated with. He announces a cancellation November 24th and December 22nd shows, uh, so they had time to regroup and restructure as a company. He said Donovan Morgan resigned as the head instructor on November 5th, and they were talking to various people, including American Dragon and Spanky, uh, about talking with his position. He also announced his intentions to sell the company or at least a large portion of it. He says he would uh, be staying on as a member of the board of directors and assume certain responsibilities. 
I've conveyed to them that I would like to still be involved in a very limited capacity and only involving in the wrestling operation and the business. I do not want to be involved in the day-to-day operation of the company, especially if it's going to be a growing company with much more responsibility. He continued, if things don't work out with the new ownership and I'm not able to stay on a limited capacity, I don't regret walking away from the wrestling business at this time. It was not, it has not become fun anymore, and it was taking too much uh, out of my health and personal life. Now, he's kind of bouncing back and forth because he just talked about how much he loved King of Indies, but mm-hmm. now says it's, it's not fun anymore. So as much as we talk about how the King of Indies almost changed the business, it was, it, his business never became the same. I mean, we'll go down here a little bit, but it, it was basically the apex of like everything. Like at that point, as you see, like he had the blow up with Modest at that event. He had blow up with Morgan at he the loses event. This two homegrown guys because of that event, because yeah. of situations around that event. So like he had his most well known event, not saying draw wise, but like the most industry changing event, and everything just basically changes for him at that point. Uh and and it also sounded like he was trying to shop it around to you, try to sell it. Do you think it. he tried selling it to find Steven Sapolsky? That's a good point. But uh, they were probably like, "We're in the East Coast," but I could we'll see just do that. our own thing. But think about it, because you would think that they reached out to him, yeah, right? Hey, we saw this, whatever. At least Feinstein probably did. And I, I, I imagine he probably tried selling it to them. He may have also tried to sell it to Bassman too, but. I think he probably tried selling it to Sapolsky and Feinstein. That would make a lot of sense. Yeah, I mean, I I could see him trying to find a mark to sell it to. Uh, I don't know if Gabe and Feinstein would have been able to afford it or decide to pay that. Um, the one thing I'm looking now, I'm just... I'm looking at... Uh, our video just to see because I've been trying to find where APW has their footage and our video has a few there's a random event from October 96 on there there's APW before there were stars volume one uh, a few of the chick fight events which will probably get to a little bit later but uh, best of Brian Danielson has some APW stuff best of Spanky but that goes along with the whole thing of like, there's not really a bunch of APW stuff out there. So like, obviously they worked with our video a little bit to get some of this early stuff out. There's more modern but, stuff, but not. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. So, I mean, that's a, uh, th- that's one thing I thought about. Like think about when he was trying to sell one and they start ring of honor. It'd be, I wonder if they had a preliminary conversation. Um, January 22nd, 2002, in the Northern California Wrestling School and Promotional Battle, most of the wrestlers have left Roland Alexander and All Part Wrestling in favor of Michael Modest and Donovan Morgan's new school and promotion, which is called Pro Wrestling Iron. Since Noah won't allow them to use the name, which they are hoping to build in some sort of American affiliation to Noah, so now he's lost his Noah relationship, too. Yeah. Uh, the school opened uh, this week with uh, Rick Thompson, um, who, who trained Mel, uh, Modest and Alexander, uh, also Vinny Massaro, uh, Bison Smith, Robert Thompson, Jardy France, uh, Tony Jones, um, all signing with him. And then Vic Grimes, Kwan uh, Kamosi, Jay Smooth, Joe uh, Applebomber, and Steve Rosano, all whom left Alexander over the past few years. So, oh, And Vinny Massaro, uh, oh, I'm sorry, um, Robert Thompson 
Rick's son is taking over for for them and being Alexander's head trainer at that time. So it feels like so it's kind of weird like the father is the trainer at one school and his son is the trainer at the rival school across town. But obviously Robert Thompson's just being a stopgap right now until rolling him and Jardy France stayed there and everybody else left. Yeah. That's uh, that's that's pretty much the, how it turned out there. Um uh, April 8, 2002, with former Universal uh, champion Michael Modest has left All Pro Wrestling to form his own group, Pro Wrestling Iron. Rowan Alexander is running a four-man tournament on May 11th in uh, Pacifica, California, to crown a new champion. They've only announced a few of the participants. American Dragon, who's moved to California to run the school, Chad Collier, and Vic Capri. Are you almost kind of surprised that even with Danielson there, that they didn't become relevant like they were pre that it kind of fell off yeah yeah because you look at that card uh of that show uh where main event was robert thompson defeating danielson for the title you also had spanky and super dragon tagging up on the show you had chiller melissa the ballard brothers uh excalibur chad collier so you had some good talent on that show so it's just it's weird. Maybe it's because just indie wrestling in general in the early two thousands kind of took a dip. And that's one of the things uh, that that, that uh, Roland also it's not talked about a lot. Did get cheerleader cheerleader Melissa a lot of her first start. So yeah, um, the, the, that's another thing uh, that that's not talked about a yeah, lot. Yeah, he still he still had new talent coming in throughout the two thousands, but it so just like, wasn't it wasn't what it used to be. It, it wasn't, wasn't it, it didn't get that attention. Um. So now the next piece is going to be something that's uh, we'll talk about a little bit here, a little meat on the bone. Uh, September twenty third, two thousand two, the death of Brian Ong. Well, actually, he died earlier, but this was the yes. first time it was reported. This is the first time it was reported yeah. here. So, in a story that is amazing that it never came out until this point, a lawsuit was filed three months ago by the parents of Brian Ong after his death in May of two thousand one. So what's crazy is is this death happens and then all the fallout with Modest and Morgan and yeah. King of Indies. So as we get through this, like Modest was the trainer when Brian died, and also, uh, like it it kind of seems shocking that none of this came out. But it is said later on that like the next event, the next Jim Wars event after Brian's death, they did a ten bell salute, and but. They told, like they being rolling the ring announcer, whoever said that this is a trainee that died in a car accident. So they carnied yeah. and they kayfabed the real reason he died to the crowd. So I think that was part of the reason why it didn't pick up and didn't get any steam because no one really, it wasn't out there. Like if it, if Roland would have came clean at that moment, I think it would have been a huge story in 2001. Um, and maybe then there is no King of Indies and none of that because all the falling out. So, yeah. Uh, so, um, so yeah, so his death in May 2001 uh, allegedly from injuries occurred in uh, wrestling practice at the All Pro Wrestling School in Hayward, California. According to the com- complaint uh, filed against the school owner, Roland Alexander, All Pro Wrestling and Pacific Coast Sports, Alexander's Wrestling Promotion and Wrestling School, 
Ong, 24, was reportedly fatally injured during practice session with uh, more than a year ago, yet the story never broke. The lawsuit claimed it was from a session where he sparred with seven foot three and 400-pound opponent. The only wrestler believed to fit that description was Dilip Singh, giant Singh of New Japan Pro Wrestling, who was originally seven foot uh, and a half and 375 pounds and was training at the school at that point, the great Kali. Uh, that was who that was. The lawsuit claimed that Ung suffered a concussion during a practice session, and instead of being advised to get medical attention and take time off from training, he was given a bad evaluation for not avoiding the injury and told to continue to practice. They said that the 5, 785-pound Ong was then put against a sparring partner of 7, 3, and 400 pounds. The lawsuit is written indicating that this size mismatch will be like a boxer or an amateur wrestler in a competitive sport. Nancy Hirsch, a partner in Hirsch & Hirsch, a San Francisco law firm that filed the suit in Supreme uh, Superior Court of Almedia County in California and claimed that legitimate organizations would never pair up sparring partners from weight classes at such spectrum. Tragically for Mr. Ong's family that they lost their son as a result of all pro wrestling's negligence and deceit. Not defending the death at all, but that point, I mean, it's wrestling. It's meant to have little guys and big guys. That's what works. At that point, there was still kayfabe somewhat, and they were trying. They were hoping that they could convince a judge or convince a jury that looking at it like a boxing event where you wouldn't have guys this different size disparity in the ring. Um. They said that Ong was throwing off the sparring partner's shoulders twice. He lost consciousness when he hit the floor and died in an ambulance on the way to the hospital. Uh, the lawsuit claimed that all pro wrestling didn't provide Ong with protective gear or p- proper suspi- uh, supervision, and the floor mats provided were not adequ- adequate to cushion the impact of the maneuvers. Uh, they're seeking damages and requesting a trial for injuries for causing the death and for fraudulent contract charges. Now, we'll get into that, but I just want to say, like, I don't blame them. I don't blame Modest, Roland, or APW for their procedure here because everyone did it that way. Like, no one back training in the early 2000s, like, that was what wrestling schools were. You didn't wear protective headgear. And again, we've, it's a common knowledge how concussion protocol has changed and evolved over the years. Back then, there wasn't really a protocol. It was like, you got your bell rung, get out there and get some water. All right, you good? Get back in there. So it wasn't, they didn't do anything that would have been considered negligence at that time. Overall, with the general general scheme of everything. Now, should they have let him back in the ring after he was feeling woozy? I, it's hard to tell. If not being there, probably not. But again, like there weren't, it wasn't a, they're not a death trap. And one thing I've actually explained once to someone in regards to another uh, wrestling lawsuit where a defendant tried to claim that the ring was defective and the ring, like the person got hurt in the ring because the ring was defective. A pro wrestling ring is not designed to be safe. Pro wrestling ring is not. Is not a supermarket floor where you you have an expectation of not falling. Like a ring is designed to hurt. A ring is designed to kind of prevent injury, but not really. So you can't really say this ring is defective or like you didn't expect to get hurt. Like that comes with the territory. 
All right, here. So uh, <clears throat> I just didn't scroll back here. I, I want to. I want to look forward. Okay. Um, so yeah. So the contract fraud charges were based on the idea that all pro wrestling charges trainees in a neighborhood of six thousand dollars for training, with the promise of fame and fortune on the pro wrestling circuit. The training contracts at the school and uh, many similar schools offer no promise of fame and fortune, only training and the guarantee if training is completed, you'll get at least some matches. Groups like APW run their money losing house shows uh, largely as a loss leader because of it fulfills the contract of promises to the students of having uh, whatever specific number of pro wrestling matches. And also because the shows are used as advertising to get new students for such a story to have never been made public until 16 months later after it happened, uh, required that the few who knew to keep a secret to a degree that would figure to be the next to impossible in the modern wrestling world. Instances of wrestling school students uh, dying from injuries are very rare, and there are only two instances, one in the late 80s uh, the U- at the UWF school and another in the mid-90s at the New Japan school of a national re- wrestling amateur champion that garnered significant publicity. Alexander said he couldn't comment on the suit. Uh, moved to September 30, 2002, the strange circumstances surrounding the death of Brian Ong um, became a major news story in the Bay Area this week. All the major newspapers covered as several of the TV stations, and NBC Dateline was considering a story on it as well. Ong died at the age of 24 on May 2001 after a spinebuster spot was messed up in practice while he was training with uh, Jilly, Giant Singh Gurikali. Uh In the lawsuit, Ong's parents, Norman and May, are suing Alexander and his various business, such as Pacific Coast Sports and All Pro Wrestling, essentially the same, and the APW boot camp, as well as partner Jason Dedrick, and anyone else that would have been in fault discovered upon further investigation. Alexander and his school, which has turned out people like Crash Holly, Spike Dudley, Mike Modest, Donovan Morgan, Biden Smith, who are all major league regulars, are best known for their beyond for the movie Beyond the Mat, where he was not portrayed kindly. But in that exposure that led to Alexander's best business years with the school. According to the Hayward Police Department on Ong's death, it stated that he was injured during wrestling practice and told the trainer he was dizzy and started to vomit. He passed out and medical personnel were called. When medics arrived, Ong was unconscious but still breathing. As they were about to transport him to the hospital, they noticed Ong no longer had a pulse and started CPR. He was rushed to the St. Rose Hospital in Hayward, California, where he was pronounced dead. The police spoke with uh, Vinnie Massaro, who was instructing the class uh, in the waiting room at the hospital, who told them that they were practicing a spine buster. Uh, Massaro said they moved, messed up the move the first time, so he had them do it again. The second time, Ong landed on his butt, and his head whipped backwards to hit the mat. Uh, Massaro walked away for a minute or two after Ong vomited, saw him unconscious, called 911 at 8.58 p.m. Alexander was not at the gym uh, when the incident happened, was at the hospital, and spoke with the police. They also spoke with Singh, who was very upset that it happened and knew little English. He knew, uh, told police he didn't intend to hurt the victim. He was so shook that he wasn't able to remember his birthday. All the wrestler trainees pre- presented had similar stories about Ung's head hitting the mat and landing badly from the spine buster, which would have been considered a relatively safe back bump maneuver. Another student was in the class, Scott McCreary, uh, described what happened, uh, what he thought happened, that Ong didn't seem to tuck his head in to his chest while taking the bump, and that uh, he hit his head back before his, or hit his head before his back when taking the bump. He said that Ong's head hit the mat really hard, and when he came up and he appeared disoriented and wasn't uh, responding to anyone. 
Uh, he then started vomiting, and, and before passing out, nobody uh, was able to revive him before they called 911. Uh, another witness, Christopher Danzer, said that Ong was the fourth wrestler who his Singh had practiced a move with. He had Singh uh, had been taught the move about two weeks earlier. He said the first spine buster looked okay. He said that the second time, Ong grabbed Singh's shirt, which caused him to fall wrong, landing on his butt, and his head whip, uh, whiplash back to his neck. He said he didn't have Ong uh, land very hard, but that Ong tried to sit up. He threw up and passed out. Danzer uh, said he checked Ong's pulse about 60 beats per minute uh, as the, after he was breathing when the fire department arrived. A third student, Jardy France, had taken a spine buster twice from Singh. He watched as uh, Singh gave Ong the first spine buster, which he thought looked okay. He didn't see the second spine buster as he left the practice room. Ong had suffered a previous uh, concussion in the practice room about two months earlier, and they are attempting to make a case that he came back sooner it was safe. Very suspicious that all their stories sound the same. Yeah. Because we know how it runs, especially a year and a half later. Oh, yeah, I think I remembered it this way and that way. Yeah. You almost remember think there'd be, like, a difference. Yeah, and, like, the com- the common thread here is that... Kali might not have been ready, but Ong at that point didn't tuck his head in, grab the shirt, like yeah. Um, like, Ong, yeah, I mean, Ong had suffered a previous conversation about two months earlier, or a previous concussion in practice two months earlier, and they are attempting to make a case that uh, he came back sooner than was safe. Now, mind you, two thousand one, we don't know anything about CTE at that time. Yeah, it was more of just you got your bell rung, just drink some water, and you'll be fine. Um, Ung signed three contracts with APW paying $6,000. He paid $500 down and financed uh, at least $5,500 at an 18% annual interest. The contract also called for Ung to pay the defendants 20% of his future earnings as a pro wrestler. There is claim that the contract stipulated that if the person discontinued training, they were still responsible for the entire fee. Um. It's kind of four years because this is the, the description's long here. Uh, yeah, there's a lot here, and when we get in, like, uh, there's you can skip the figure four. Yeah, uh, no, it's just because it's basically the same thing. Just uh, there was just one thing I wanted to point out there that um, from Alvarez just said that real, real quick. I just want to mention that Ong's death was mentioned by uh, uh, Mike Monis the next APW show when he gave a speech about Ong. Ong's death was never uh, kept a secret, and the fact that he died in practice almost seemed completely unknown. Several have heard a story that Ong was killed in an auto accident on the way back from practice. Yeah, so that's that what I said there. But I just uh, skip ahead because Alvarez, I listed everything Alvarez said too, but it's pretty much the same stuff, just regurgitated a little bit different. But uh, some of the different things here are just that said, uh, Roland, who has a million-dollar liability policy, and his attorneys are banking on a hold-harmless consent form that all students must sign before they begin training. Hirsch and Hirsch believe that Ong's concussion following the first spinebuster rendered him unable to rationally give informed consent to take in another one. Now, what I've learned in my 9-to-5 job, that those hold-harmless agreements, they, they're not worth the paper they're written on. Like, if you... If you sign a paper, if you sign up for a a gym like Planet Fitness and they get you to sign a whole homeless thing that if you trip and fall, you're not going to sue them. If you trip and fall, you could sue them and get money. Like that stuff doesn't hold up in court and no hold homeless agreement will. Uh, any competent attorney will rip that apart. So – but and, and just the fact of like even to this day, I know some promoters still do that 
Like that was a huge thing in the early 2000s, at least in New York, when in New York State you got to be licensed by the Athletic Commission, but a lot of promoters ran dark shows and were not licensed by the commission and did not have insurance on the wrestlers and thought signing a hold harmless agreement saying you understand the risk of getting in the ring, they thought that was going to be fine for them. And all it really does is discourage you from suing. It tries to get in your mind that, oh, I got hurt, but I signed this. You won't win a lawsuit. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, Yeah, it's convincing the person, oh, but you signed this. You're not going to win a lawsuit when, no, you're going to win a lawsuit because those things don't mean anything. But it's kind of weird that even at this point, Alexander, who's a tax accountant, who kind of understands law, that he still thinks that to a million-dollar lawsuit that, oh, the kid signed a paper saying he he was harmless. Like, no, not going to work. Now, uh, the uh, – so now uh, it also says that, that they're looking for specific damages. Um, uh, the unfair and deceptive business practices among the contract-related complaints that the school charges interest rates as high as 82% uh, with people using the financing plan. Any student must give up 20% of the earnings of the career. Alexander claims he's never used this before. Uh, and, and they also uh, said that Alexander is not a registered sports agent, that his fees are unreasonable, and that the contracts are basically lifetime violations of the Health Studios Act, th- that the school is an unlicensed garage. Uh, the belief is that if the state gets involved, the school will be shut down. So uh, they're going after him for anything at this point. And then you said, too, they, he sent his family, Brian Ong's family, a bill. And that's kind of what probably caused. <laughs> yeah, it. yeah. It comes up later that the the uh, Brian Young's family was pretty much just they pretty much accepted that. All right, like this is what our son wanted to do. He got hurt. Uh, you know, living there, and it's an unfortunate tragedy. It was an accident, but uh, Roland sent them a bill for what he owed, and that I guess was the catalyst. For them to be like, you know what, fuck this guy. Yeah, so that uh, so it was a claim that the Ung family initially saw the situation the same way that it was a tragedy and didn't, and the deal didn't get ugly until APW owner Roland Alexander sent the family a bill for the remainder of the tuition shortly after Ung died. That, that kind of that that kind of like takes away some of the stuff we said earlier about Roland being like. A progressive guy with some of the stuff he's planning and he's still doing carny stuff like that like you gotta you got away you got away with this you should have just let it go um considering like what we figured out too that the kid was if brian paid 500 up front and was financing that and was training there he put 500 down yeah. and was paying for a year and then he was there for nine weeks i think he figured out my crude math figure that you already paid like seven grand. Yeah, so like, well, how much did guy he, died? Like, how much? Let it go. How much more did he owe? Like, maybe yeah. the the interest, the outrageous yeah. fucking eighteen percent <laughs> interest. <laughs> but yeah, just let that let that go. Um, now this is a little bit side here in two thousand three, but this is from Pro Wrestling Iron's website. Not sure what all of a sudden what made them excited Roland Alexander again, but it was titled Pro Wrestling Iron to hire fat instructor to tell trainees how to eat. It said Donovan Morgan is hiring an overweight instructor to teach all of PWI students how to eat and work out. 
When asked why he has done this, Donovan replied, why have someone that is in shape do this? That They won't listen to a person who's in shape. They only want to listen to fat people. Uh, Donovan Morgan also reported to add that Beyond the Mat could help you uh, see how this works. When you have a 300-pound promoter telling you you need to watch your fat intake, well, what else do you need to know? Our instructor will be starting next week. His name is Jerry Snackwell. So they just felt the need in December 2003 when... Uh, they thought they needed to just put a little bit more dig there on Roland. Yeah. So, like, the bad blood. While he's going, really all this going on. Yeah, there's some real bad blood there. And that was before, like, the common practice of trolling somewhere online. Like, that was a big deal. Now, when the jury verdict in 2005, at this point, Great Kali is now known. Longest yard. He's in WWE. Like, people yeah, know the Great he's Kali. He's New Japan, now. yeah. Yeah. Um, they, they know who Kali is. But, uh, so... The uh, trial, uh, which started on, <laughs> I cannot wait to talk about this. The uh, the, the trial that started on June twenty second included testimony from a few major names in the industry, <laughs> included noted wrestling trainers Bruce Hart for the defense and Larry Sharp for the plaintiffs. Morgan, real name Andrew Visos, testified via tape done on June nineteenth due to his uh, being in Japan for uh, Noah, uh, which which is allegiances from APW PWI when he and Modest left the promotion in two thousand one. All right, I'll get into more Bruce. <laughs> Bruce Hart was paid two hundred fifty thousand hours as an expert witness, while Wheel uh, testified that he was earning one hundred fifty yeah, yeah per hour. Hart estimated that he worked eighty dollars eighty to. Or, I'm sorry that he worked 80 uh, hours uh, on the week uh, in the case. Uh, he talked in his usual soft-spoken, intellectual manner, which ended up putting several people in the courtroom, including Alexander, at uh, one point to sleep. Hart was admonished at one point by the judge because of his long-winded answers that frequently went off topic. Oh, more Chewbacca defense, <laughs> <laughs> telling him this, this, telling him to stop saying a hell of a lot. And to stick to answering the questions, the key point. So, so wait, I I want to know like why Roland called Bruce Hart. I like, was just, out of, of of all people, you know people in the business, Roland. You could have got Thatcher. You could have got that. Yeah, like you called. Bruce you could have got Danny Hart. Davis. There was so many trainers you could get to come in. You call yeah Bruce Hart, and <laughs> like putting people to sleep. Uh, the key point uh, is what is a landmark ver- verdict was the several testified that uh, Ong suffered a concussion taking a second rope schoolboy uh, maybe a month before his death. So if that concussion doesn't happen before that, that you know, it was testified that Ong never taken a flapjack bunk prior to May 2001, uh, the night of his death, uh, May 28th. The several other wrestlers, including Jardy France and Larry Hervey, testified uh, that they refused to take any bumps from Kali uh, being all injured on previous uh Bumps. Angry to let uh, Khalid try to move on him. The class was accelerated learning class for him, which due to his company or size, the company expected to be a major money player in the sport. Uh, Khalid saw Ron Simmons do the flapjack on television and wanted to learn it. It's not a guy like, like, I mean, Ron's is a big guy, but Khalid should have not been. Oh yeah, I want to do what Farouk's doing. <laughs> like this. no, because like Farouk doing the spine buster, you're not really, you're not being picked up. Like no, Khalid's like, picking you up. That's a huge bump. But also, like, it's said right there that kind of – I could see that hurting Roland's cases where that it was an accelerated class. They they pushed Kali through this because Roland saw it. And 
did Roland think that like, oh, I could get 20% out of Kali's contract because he wouldn't question this in the contract? I could see that. You know, but and, he definitely wanted to push him through because he saw dollar signs on Kali. And he injured France and injured Harvey, and they refused to work on longer. So, like, it's almost – if if a couple of your guys are refusing to work with him, maybe you don't have him keep doing spots on people. Like uh, we, we've heard from people that were in WWE that have had to work Kali on job spots, and they've even said, like, that was the most nervous they've ever been in the ring with Kali, just doing something as simple as a chop, whether it be his reputation or, like, the fact he doesn't speak English. Yeah. It's just he's a big man, and you – like, he could really hurt you. Um. So uh, – and, and I do have the – I'm skipping a little ahead, uh, uh, Ash. I do have, like, the actual damages, but I'll say at the end, like, how much I actually had to pay out. Uh, another key point in the trial is that the police were told upon his death that Ong had been training for several months, which actually was closer to nine weeks. So lying to the cops, like n- 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 not good uh, for the court there. Um, I think that was more of just saying like, oh, yeah, he's been seven months being like he's trained to know what he's doing. But I'm... and then what what really got him was when Modest was testifying, he talked about his story with the concussion. And that Alexander was upset with him and wanted him a 20-minute match and he was beat up and all that. Yeah, so when we said earlier, like, remember that, like, the whole King of the Indies where, yeah, Rowling was pissed off that Modest pulled himself in the tournament because of concussion. Like, that – and now knowing, like, this happened, that Rowling arguing with Modest over concussion happened three months before – or several months before this – or, I'm sorry, several months after – Hong's death really paints that picture. I think that hurt Roland too in the lawsuit where this kid died because of a concussion. And then a few months later, you're still not being sensitive to concussion issues. Like that's not good. No, no, not at all there. Uh, um, So modest testimony really, really did hurt Roland. And as he also mentioned that the coaches don't have, uh, EMT training, and it was just call nine one one if there if there's an emergency. You know how nine one one is. You you really only want to call nine one one if it's an emergency. Well, you should have somebody there who could know how to check something to decide. Yeah, but again, that, that, that's still a weird thing because I doubt pro wrestling iron school at that time actually had EM, people with EMT training either. Like I don't. No school did. Like I said, that was common protocol for a school, so I don't really hold that against them. There's a lot of stuff here that you can hold Roland for. You take him to task on. I don't think not having EMT training at the school is one thing you can hold against them. Um, the uh, they award Ong's parents, Norman and May Ong, a uh, million dollars at each in punitive damages and another eleven thousand eight hundred fifty-nine dollars in economic damages relating to funeral burial expenses. The jury's also believed that Ung himself was negligent in causing his death. In the end, uh, they felt that two-thirds of the responsibility of death was on the school and one-third on Ung, uh, leading to the school being responsible for approximately $1.3 million in the uh, decision. And then Roland mentions in Art of Wrestling that it was insurance, and he claims that that, you know, insurance paid it. That's a, It didn't cripple me. But we could tell, I mean, APW deals did run, but it was like he started yeah. to lose and lose and lose. When when you look at results going forward after that, it went from running 
Bakersfield, you know, running uh, King City, running Santa Maria, big cities around the area, to now Hayward, California. Here's Gym Wars. Here's event Christmas Chaos 06 in Hayward. This is probably also at the school. You have March Madness. Uh, not that. Like Halloween Hell. You have all these shows I'm looking at here. Gauntlet to the Gold. All throughout 2006, 2007, 2008. And... At Hayward in Hayward, California. So he started moving all of his shows at the gym, and it seems like he's probably following the same uh, business model of just running student shows and making money off the school. And um, n- you know, uh, not going to touch much. I know we mentioned about possibly talking about APW after his death. I don't think we need to. I don't know if if you agree on that or, or like no, that. like I don't, I don't like no, like it. It still continued. Like he ran, they ran a memorial show after his death. They, uh, they pretty much closed the school at that point, and another school opened up, and they were still running shows here and there. Um, and there was like chick fight and the cow palace. They're running the cow palace, like which is crazy. Yeah, no, I think like that. I'll just I'll briefly touch on like they did run in 2017 at the cow palace. Uh, and uh, they actually ran two shows at the Cow Palace, one in May of 2017, one in uh, November. Uh, first one did really well, did 3,000. Second one did a little less than 2,000. So, like, obviously never ran again. But, like, first one, 2017, had main event of Steel Cage match. Cody Rhodes defeats Joey Ryan. You also had uh, Brian Cage in the show, John Morrison, Jeff Cobb, Shayna Baszler, Will Hobbs. Uh Jacob Fatu, Shotzi Blackheart, Candle Saray, Rachel Ellering, uh, Jungle Boy was in there. So they had a good amount of names. Second one, pretty much the same thing. Uh, when you look at Matt, look at name value, Matt Cross, Jacob Fatu again, uh, Candle Saray, Jack Swagger, Hoovitude Guerrero Mysterio against Lucha Bros as a main event. So, like, those drew, but again, that was. 2017 as one-offs in at a time that the business was hot. So you, I don't really think that you could really paint that picture. Like the first one, I also had Pat Patterson make an appearance. It's like yeah. you can't really paint that as oh APW came back and started running really well at that time. I think by the 2000s, the mid 2000s around this time, like. You also had PWG that was running. You had other feds coming up, popping up in Northern California. So, like, the California scene kind of moved on without him. Now, obviously, Brian Danielson took over. He was still the trainer for a lot of this time in the early and mid-2000s. Um, and there was, like, is it Jason Diedrich who currently owns it? Like, I don't, I couldn't find out who really owns APW right now. Um. Marcus Mack. Marcus Mack. Okay. <laughs> um, now, uh, but uh, and Reno Scum too also okay. worked there. Th- uh, Timothy Thatcher. Like, there's a long list. Yeah. Like, there's I, a lot of guys. I that know are... Brian Zane from Wrestling Regret. Has yeah, been heavily involved in there. Yeah. So again, they're 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 still around, but it's nothing that they're not as revolutionary as it was. Yeah. Like, and if We're... you want to, if you want to hit on uh, Alexander's death, because we kind of skipped over that. In well, that, I was I was going back to that, and then I was gonna yeah yeah, yeah. so. All right, so yeah, I just kind of wanted to do a side note on that there. All right, so yeah, um, 
to Roland Alexander. Uh, he did pass away on November 5th, 2013 at the age of 59. He had been in poor health for the last uh, several years due to uh, heart problems and uh, serious diabetes. Uh, they were, they got it. He passed away in his sleep and was discovered by his roommate, Larry Harvey, who was independent wrestler, Larry Blackwell, who had uh, um, now, and, and then, you know, Meltzer, obviously Meltzer knew him very well. And, and Roland. So I'm going to kind of do a pros and cons thing, Roland and, and not official pros and cons. So like, or just, you know, he, he revolutionized a lot of things running a convention, you know, the way wrestling school is modeled, the King of the Indies being on beyond the man and kind of opening people up to how a wrestling school is ran. Like you saw little news stories, but like doing it in a large platform. Uh, but then, you know, being all about the money, charging higher fees than most places. And the thing with Brian Ong and sending his family a bill, like, the, he's not Delgani. He's not, you know what I mean? He's not Delgani. He's not where it was just all about money and, and, and ego. And It wasn't about scamming everyone just for your own personal benefit or your own personal addictions. Like, yeah. no. Like, I put Rowling way much higher because he definitely contributed positively to this business. And there's a lot of guys that hold their career res- responsible for him. Like, he's responsible for their career. So, yeah, like, he's he's up there in the list of top indie promoters of all time. But, like, as you said, like, there's pros and cons there of, like, he. I think he's his own worst enemy, though. Like, when we look at his success and then we look at his failure, all of his failures can be blamed on himself. I don't want to say that as being heartless, but, like the 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 failure of like losing modest and morgan was his own doing and as he said on out of wrestling with colt he said he was stubborn and like he'll get into an argument with you and he that that's that so he 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 broke up that he broke he broke up that relationship and he caused processing iron to be formed he he lost the noah deal on his own for doing that now he wasn't responsible for Brian Ung because he wasn't there, but forcing Kali through her, through the advanced class, uh, and like sending the bill, obviously to the family, like that's all on him, and it's it's hard it's hard to say like it's hard to feel sorry for him. To be like he's un- unfortunately lost money and had all these failures in his career because they're all on him. Um, and a lot of people, you know, I saw videos of like a lot of people doing tributes to him uh, at the memorial show, talking about him. Guys like Robert Thompson and Vic Grimes, and uh, and uh, on the memorial show itself, it was hold- held November eighth, two thousand thirteen. Uh, Six-man challenge match. Marcus Lewis defeated El Mariachi. Jerry France, Sir Samurai, Sledge, and Tyler Bateman. Uh, Hell's Henchman, uh, Dalton Frost, and Kevin Michael Johnson in Venice DeMarco with Dozier and Jay Streets defeated El Chupacabra, Kid Omega, and Luster the Legend. 
J.R. Kratos defeated Jeff Cobb with John LaRocca. The West Side Playas 2000, Boyce LeGrand and Robert Thompson with Icebox, defeated Pretty Black and Jack. Uh, Damian Grundy and Will Rod with Rye Gamble. Uh, Sinone Fanu uh, defeated Trucks. Uh, Jekylls defeated Billy Blade and Drake Younger and Vinny Massaro uh, for the uh, APW Internet title. You had Dave Dutra and Jody Christopherson defeated Pink Mink Inc., which was Matt Carlos and Rick Luxury. Larry Blackwell defeated Shane Dynasty. And then you had the Open Rumble match, which had uh, Robert Thompson win it. You had Alex Trebek, Alan Michaels, Billy Blade, Boyce O'Graham, Brittany Wonder, Chicana Flame, Dalton Frost, Daniel Canales, Daniel Torres, Dominique Simon, Drake Younger, El Chupacabra, El Pistolero, Aaron Jordan, James Watkins, Jody Christopherson, yes, Christopherson's son, uh, Joel DeSole, John Rodato, J.R. Kratos, Julian Simpson, Kafu, Ken Omega, Killer J. Matthias, Larry Blackwell, Lawrence Shum, Levi Shapiro, uh, Lesser the Legend, Marcus Lewis, Mar- Maria Munoz, Mark, Matt Carlos, Mikey J., Pantera, uh, Perry Von Vicious, Rick Luxury, Ruby Rays, Ryan McQueen, Sanumfanu, Sir Samurai Sledge, Tila the Insano Dragon, and the Greatest Men of Wrestling, uh, Trucks, Tyler Bateman, Venice DeMarco, Vinny Massaro, and Will Rude. So obviously a lot of people in that battle royal for him, but a lot of his trainers, but Morgan and Modest never, never reconciled with him. No, and it's... Because they're not part of this at all. No, it's, that's they're, kind of... Hard, you know, it's kind of depressing. Looks like Vic Grimes did show up in Detroit. I don't yeah. think Mod has talked or no. anything of this. Uh, Melcher did say that like Roland kind of knew he was on his way out, that he actually was calling and making amends with a lot of people in his life that he wronged or that had issues with him. But obviously, like Modest and Morgan just never really uh, reconciled. Like, I don't know personally. I can't really speak on that. But like when we look at a few of these uh, – a few of the random uh, memorial shows that they've done over the years, their names are absent from what I'm seeing. And also, like, you, uh, two years later or a year and a half later, when Mania was in uh, was in the Bay Area, uh, High Spots ran their usual uh, convention and series of shows. There was actually a King of Indies tournament in respect of of Roland, uh, which was run by Adam Thornstow of Reno Scum, beating Willie Mack in the finals. And uh, also saw B-Boy, uh, Brian Cage, Jeff Cobb, Ray Horace, Willie Mack, Jody Christopherson, uh, Sean Ricker, a.k.a. Eli Drake, um, Vinnie Massaro, and Timothy Thatcher, among others, in the tournament, too, in 2015. And then uh, King of Indies did com- did continue in 2018 and 2019 for Pro Wrestling Revolution. So, like, the name, the APW name, legacy yeah, now. and the legacy still continued um, throughout. And both those years were owned by Dragon Lee. So there's still, like, even though he died in 2013, there's still a few things here and there. Like I said, the, uh, the two Cow Palace shows in 2017 were ran uh, mostly with, like, Roland's name out there as like as shows to honor him when he passed away um a lot of people did speak out on twitter uh now the the, the late great rob Ryder, you know recipes for old alexander 
truly one of a kind character. Christopher Daniel said, rest in peace, Roland Alexander, very influential in my early career and always passionate about this business. Thanks, Roland. Uh, Todd Kenley, uh, uh, announcer in California, rest in peace, Roland Alexander. He helped many great talents strive and live the dream in the wrestling biz and should be celebrated for his efforts. Um, AJ Kirsch, who's now currently involved with MLW. I fell asleep with a heavy heart after hearing about Roland Alexander had passed away. Thank you, Roland. Pro wrestling will not be the same. Gabe Sapolsky, rest in peace, Roland Alexander. Didn't know him personally, but King of Indies changed independent wrestling and influenced the start of Ring of Honor. So maybe he never had that conversation. Carino, woke up, Steve Carino, woke up to the sad news that Roland Alexander passed away. He always was a good guy to me and loved the pro wrestling industry so much. Rest in peace. Uh, Roland Alexander taught me one of the most important lessons I've ever learned. His advice helped me when I was homeless and got me back up. TJP. Uh, Frankie Kazarian, uh, rest in peace, Roland Alexander from the UPW, APW Wars and King of Indies, where I met many friends. Thank you, sir, for your contribution to the business. Shelly Martinez, rest in peace, Roland Alexander. His words encouraged me to get my booty back in training and then change my life personally and professionally. One love. Uh, cheerleader, Melissa, rest in peace, Roland Alexander. Thank you for everything. Uh, Chris Hero, condolences to the friends and family, Roland Alexander. Only worked for him once, but he was good to me. Matt Hardy, sad to hear about Roland Alexander, uh, has passed, spent time with Roland in May. He was so passionate about the business and kind of to me. God bless you. And then Samoa Joe, just learned that Roland Alexander uh, passed. My condolences to all who know him, one of the most passionate people I've ever met. Uh, Bushwhacker Luke, a friend of many moons and a father of the West Coast Wrestling, passed away. Roland Alexander, God bless and then uh, Kevin Gill, rest in peace, Roland Alexander from APW. Thank you for what you've done for NorCal Wrestling and always welcoming me to your shows. Um, there was one other person quoted in that article, but we're not going to talk about it. Okay. So, <laughs> uh, but a lot of guys, a lot of people he touched. And like I said, I'm not going to sit here and defend the high rates of wrestling school. I'm not going to defend the Brian Ung situation. Um, it, you know, as far as sending the bill to the parents, but you have to give credit where he is due. He did help a lot of careers. Um, he really changed independent wrestling in California and wrestling models. And, and I'm telling you right now, there's no pro wrestling gorilla without an APW because it, it, it really helped independent wrestling in California. And then if you don't have a pro wrestling gorilla, you don't have and all eight wrestling. <laughs> and then it just goes to, if you don't have all APW, you don't have ring of honor. Like it's, it's crazy. No one gives this man the due he deserves. They just know him as the guy on beyond the mat. Yeah. The fact that he, he lost so much money on that show, but whether he realized at that point or not, that this was, hopefully he'd learned in hindsight that he knew in hindsight before he died, that like what he did change the business. So, I mean, everything from this, you got Beyond the Mat, uh, the Secrets of Pro Wrestling, uh, you know, the King of the Indies Tournament, the Brian Ung Death and Trial, like a lot of big events that this guy, you know, ha- had a part of. So, you know, whether good or bad. Yeah. Um, uh, you have any uh, comments before we wrap up here, Ash? No, I think you pretty much uh, covered everything in there. Yeah, this one went a lot longer than we expected. 
Yeah, I remember you uh, initially You're worried about you the initially material. didn't think we were going to go this long. You thinking like there wasn't much material, and I I went research. through and like yeah, the most notes of every, any show to to date on us, and there was a lot more in the notes too that we didn't really hit on. Mostly like the legacy afterwards of like I said those cow palace shows and a little more regarding that. Yeah. But. Well. We want to thank you guys for listening. Uh, this is going to release uh, right before Christmas, so we want to wish you guys all a happy holiday. Uh, you know, Merry Christmas if you celebrate Christmas, but just have a happy holiday, have a good winter season, and a happy new year. We'll be back in January. We're gonna, you got to go to the Twitter <laughs> to find out what our next topic is going to be. That's what we're going to do. Uh, kind of tease a little bit. Follow us on Twitter so we you can find out who the next topic uh, is going to be for the show uh but uh follow us on twitter follow us individually too we need the clowns yes yeah jonathan ash chris gullo on twitter uh i actually you know what christmas time i'm in a movie christmas staycation you could look it up on youtube uh it's a, i i did a film movie for funny buffalo films journey Molov in los angeles so uh yeah uh, i'm sitting at home playing with my dogs like yeah so uh, check check that out guys but thank you for listening we you know, it's been a great year. We've been doing this for about half the year, not even a quarter of the year. And you guys have listened to us and the numbers keep growing and growing. And thank you very much for listening. I want to thank everyone out there. I want to thank uh, Matt Johnson over here at the podcast precinct. I want to thank all the guys at the BICPB radio network, as far as uh, Chris Chavez, uh, Johnny Towns and Andrew Lenz, all those guys um, want to thank everybody. And sorry, you missed people. Thank everybody involved. Uh, and like I said, I hope you all have a very good holiday. Thanks for listening, and we're going to have a fun 2021. Grocery Shopping Day. Oh, hello, Mr. Cashier. Hello, Mrs. Card Pusher. Hello. How are you doing today? Let's see what the old wife put on the uh, the shopping list today. Let's see what. Um, let's see. Number one, we got a uh, Chris Hamsworth. Oh, that doesn't seem right. I don't. I don't think that was, they sell those here. Uh, must be some kind of mistake. Uh, let's see what else. Uh, Chris Evans. Oh boy. This is her celebrity crush list. Awkward. Don't be like this, husband and wife. There's only one place where a list like that belongs, and that's the Eat Sleep List podcast. You can hear us every Friday on BICBP radio.com, Apple Podcasts, or Spotify.